The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste make that sound effect. There it is. Uh, My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic of some note, perhaps. You're you're a B-flat. A what? You're a B-flat. That's your note. Oh, sure. I don't have a pitch pipe. Otherwise, I I don't have perfect pitch. I don't know that. Uh, Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, uh, it's December. And that's a month for a whole bunch of movies, even in a regular year. And in 2020, no exception. Tons of movies coming out. The the studios just get out their shovel and start scooping it at us. Uh, This week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases, The Prom, Alex Wheatle, Wild Mountain Time. That's time with a Y. I'm Your Woman, Gunda, Funny Boy, and on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we take this opportunity to catch up on some of the older movies on streaming that one or both of us have never seen before, uh, we're talking about the absolute unsung classic fantasy epic Dragon Slayer, which Whitney had never seen, and I can't wait to get his thoughts because I'm a fan. Okay. Uh, so this would be interesting. We've talked a lot about Dragon Slayer, yeah. and Dragon Slayer is just one that is completely escaped my attention yeah it was it was ambitious it was nominated for a couple of oscars when it came out for best original score and visual effects lost both of those uh and uh it was a huge bump like people didn't go see it and it just kind of was on the periphery of sci-fi fantasy for a bit but it has its fans and i'm very curious to find out if whitney is one of them but we won't know that until the second half of the program i'm, I'm going to tease it out yeah um, we'll, we'll just have to wait uh, as always lately in this this horrible year, uh, we lost uh, uh, some more titans of the industry. Uh, in particular, we want to highlight uh, an actor who I think made an indelible impression, particularly upon a certain generation, uh, and perhaps didn't get the respect that he deserved in his lifetime. I'm speaking of Tommy Tiny Lister. Uh, who you probably know best as Debo from the Friday movies, but who Whitney and I know best as Zeus. <laughs> uh, this um, this horrible piece of crap movie came out in the late eighties. <laughs> it was really called bad. It was called No Holds Barred. It was a, a starring vehicle for Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. I think it was his first like proper leading role. Like, I think he started I, doing his suburban commando I stuff. I think he'd already been Thunderlips in Rocky. Four in that I, one? I, no, he's rocking. He was rocking. Rocky three was Thunderlips. Rocky three was Thunderlips. Rocky three was Thunderlips. Fun mm. cameo. He's good in that movie. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, Hulk Hogan was a huge, huge entertainment icon in the 1980s for his work in wrestling. He was doing a lot of stuff about like, hey kids, make sure you be really good to your body. I'm not to, doing steroids. Uh, to, to, be sure to take your vitamins and be kind. Yeah, that's how I got this. Mm. Not not steroids. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and he, and he eventually segued into a briefly lucrative movie career in which he had a couple of hits and then 
no hits afterwards. He was in a good number of movies, but his first leading role was a film called No Holds Barred. Which was very he, specifically designed for him. He's, yeah, cl- he's clearly playing he, a version of himself. He's playing a wrestler named, get this, Rip. Yes! And, uh, <laughs> he rips his shirt. Which is what Hulk Hogan did. He ripped yeah. his shirt off. And in this one, he's just playing a character named Rip and... Uh, He's got a little brother who is, he's, he's going to make it. That little brother's going to make it. And <laughs> and there's like an evil corporation that wants uh, to sign him. And when well, he won't uh, sign well, with Kurt, them, they do Kurt evil Fuller things. Kurt is the evil, uh, yeah. the evil corporation guy. Quite famously, they, there's uh, a scene in which he beats up a whole bunch of goons. And then he picks up a guy. He's about to hit the guy. And then he starts sniffing us. What's that smell? And the guy goes, <laughs> Dookie! <laughs> and then Hulk Hogan takes a second and says, Dookie. Classic hmm. cinema. But Tiny Lister played the bad guy in No Holds Barred, the He's, evil wrestler who yeah, they, Hulk has to fight. Yeah, he just sort of appeared. Like, it was one of those, like, free-for-alls. Anybody can come up and wrestle yeah. the champ. And this guy, this mountainous man, just sort of appeared out of nowhere. Didn't say anything. Yeah, not had, at first. Anyway, had, yeah. had the letter Z shaved into the side of his head. Yeah. Uh, completely bald otherwise, and uh, yeah, like he beat the shit out of he, everybody. He like grabbed tufts of hair and just yanked him out of people's heads, and asked him, "What's your name?" And the, the his only line of dialogue was Zeus. And I'm sorry, when I was a kid, I was like six or seven. When I, remember, <laughs> when I was a kid, Zeus was the scariest guy ever. Zeus was like, yeah. "Holy God." And he this has, Zeus uh, guy means business. And his toughness uh, gesture was uh, he would like pound the side of his neck like the opposite side of his neck yeah, was it was weird uh, Zeus ended up sort of played by Tiny Lister uh, ended up segueing into the WWF very briefly like after yeah. No Holds Barred as these sort of exhibition matches he actually he actually was in there twice and I want to make sure I get this mm-hmm. right because uh, he was in the WWE whatever well it's, it's now WWE it was WWF yeah. back initially in the day. he was in the WWF as Zeus uh huh and then in 1996, he returned to the WCW for a little while as Z Gangsta. Ah, like so updated they kinda, for the 90s. They kind of re- rebranded and made him hip for the kids. Yeah, Z Gangsta. Oh yeah. god, it's like it's like when all the superheroes yeah. like, oh, it's not uh, Superman isn't cool anymore in the 90s. Now we have Electric Superman. Yeah, got, that was Z Gangsta. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not Count Bled. Now you're Count Eight. Yeah. That's a Greg the Bunny reference. Uh, yeah, t- and he went on to be in a couple other... He was uh, in the Friday movies. Uh, he which, was... I, which I, you know, I'm not as familiar with. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen them, but I'm just not, like... The, to me, he was Zeus. Wow. To me, he was the president of the galaxy in the fifth element. Yeah. Which was a bit of casting that I think a lot of people went, huh. And everyone was like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> For a second, you go, huh, Tiny Listeners, president of the galaxy. Yeah. Interesting casting. Cool. Wait, All right. Wait. Yeah. Good for him. fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> perhaps most recent is most recent, like major role. And it's, it was a while ago now, mm. but, uh, he played a prisoner in Christopher Nolan's the dark Knight. That's right. At the end of the movie, you recall that the Joker is performing one of his many experiments in social chaos. And there's two fairies and, uh, each one of them has, a button that will destroy the other fairy, and if they don't press it in, in a certain amount of time, they'll mm-hmm. both blow up. And the, and the gag is, one is, uh, like, wealthy Gotham citizens, and the other one is a prison ship. Yeah. Full of prisoners. And, uh, of course, they're all fighting for it, and at the end, uh, you know, everyone, like, the guards are trying to fight off the prisoners, what do we do? And then Tiny Lister, you know, he's this giant hulking man, uh, picks up and says, I'll do it. 
no, you don't want this on your conscience. I'll do it. And then he picks it up and then he throws it over the side. <laughs> the most moral person in the entire Dark Knight universe is Tiny, Lister. Tiny Lister. <laughs> and I kind of love that. I really do. He's so cool. Hmm. Um, he, he was a really cool guy. And yeah. from, from what I understand, he was uh, uh, a, a bit of a character in person. Yeah. Uh, people have told stories about how he would charge onto into offices or onto sets like toss his keys to somebody and just yell his lunch. <laughs> God. That's, like, a, a, like he'd, he'd, he'd charge out on his says like, Hey, how you doing there? Taco Bell. It, okay. I'm look, off to get some Taco Bell. Any particular Taco Bell? Taco Bell. <laughs> okay. Crunchy tacos. Like it, he, no, he, he, right. wasn't, he wasn't rude. He was just insistent. No, I, that's he wants his lunch. I, and, I wasn't uh, there for the events. I'm imagining how it went in my I've, head. I've, I've heard. And, and this was like, I think this is Mark Maron's story, but, and I think yeah. it's confirmed now that he, uh, would, when he first showed up Mark, Mark Maron's office, he said like chicken Caesar salad. Like that's what he wanted for lunch that day. He's like, how are you doing? Mr. Chicken Caesar salad. <laughs> he doesn't even order. He's like, that's what I want for. Are we going to have lunch later? Or John, just... John Mulaney had a whole bit about uh, that, about how he's working on Saturday night live hmm. and how celebrities operate on a different plane of existence. Like, he, <laughs> he got to do a bit with Mick Jagger and he got to like write a sketch with Mick Jagger. But like Mick Jagger is the kind of celebrity who just has to say, Diet Coke and uh, just one appears next to him like yeah, yeah. someone just grabs it even if they don't work for him <laughs> like that he's just that level of famous and I guess Tiny Lister was good for him yeah. well and, and you know Tiny Lister was also an enormous imposing man yeah. so you might be a little intimidated so he played a lot of those roles he played yeah, a lot of a prison lot of guards he- heavies and yeah, yeah kind, he was of, a, kind of mean characters he was a prison guard in uh, Wishmaster 2 which is a horror sequel I'm unnaturally fond of uh <laughs> Like, I think I think unnatural. Those, those, those Wish Master movies are are okay. The first two are pretty fun. First two are pretty. For, fun. First one has wonderful gore effect. He was uh, he was uh, John Candy and Eugene Levy's like boss in Armed and Dangerous. Remember that movie? I didn't see Armed and Dangerous. Armed and Dangerous is this mostly forgotten eighties comedy. It's not great, but there's some good bits. Mm. Uh, John Candy and Eugene Levy play guys who lose their jobs and end up becoming uh, just sort of rent a security cops. Uh, and it turns out someone's like stealing from every place where this security agency is working from and it's an inside job i think mm-hmm. if memory serves tiny lister is in on it what's perhaps most notable is that it's an early meg ryan role before she was famous but she was the romantic lead for eugene levy okay which is just sort of like that probably wouldn't have happened a couple of years later but they're cute together and i like <laughs> it um they're, they're both charming and funny they're nice um so in any case tiny lister is a really fun character actor mm-hmm. um Always wonderful to see him pop up in anything, and uh, that sucks. Death sucks, mm. and I'm really mad. Um, so, in any case, Tiny, pour one out for you. Indeed, good, good, good on mm. you, sir. Good, good luck. You know. Um, moving on. Uh, Let, let's review some films. Let's do it. So let's start with. Um, I guess if we were talking about the biggest movie this week. Mm. I guess if you just look at the cast alone, it has to be the prom. And the prom is, uh, it, it's a Netflix release. It got a lot. It was on their like most popular of the week. Who's to say if they're, mm-hmm. they're hyping it or if that's true. Yeah. They but, never uh, release any numbers. So it's just basically all the honor system over at Netflix. <laughs> but yeah. It has a, a huge cast. It's based on a Tony nominated musical. Uh, it was not up for a bunch of Tony's, mm-hmm. uh, the musical, the prom, although it did not win any. Didn't win a single one. Uh, huh? okay. Nope. Okay. Uh, and this is the uh, star-studded film version of it. Uh, the premise of the musical and the film is 
a bunch of uh, Broadway stars who are now sort of on the outs in the public eye because they are uh, narcissistic and horrible yeah. have decided they need something to make them seal, seem a little bit more relatable as human beings. By complete chance, they hear a story of a young girl in a teenage girl in Illinois. That's who, Indiana. Or Indiana, excuse Sorry. me. And in Indiana. The other yeah, I not yeah, Iowa, I, not Indiana, not, not Illinois, I, Oklahoma, one of those yeah. I states, and uh, uh, she has been for. She wanted to take her girlfriend to her high school prom. Yeah, and because it is a an bigoted high school, they've decided and community to, and, at yeah, large. And, and community at large. They've yeah. decided to cancel the prom altogether, and so these Broadway stars decide to make this their cause. Yeah, to uh, let this pre- be your preach inclusion in this little uh, yeah. little rinky dink. Not town. because they believe in it; they do because it's a it's mm. kind of a, a no brainer kind of issue for for them, but. Uh, they're doing not, it for their own sake. They're doing it because it will get them publicity. Mm-hmm. They will look good doing good. Yeah. Uh, so they come to this town. Uh, they consist of Meryl Streep, James Corden. Uh, they play the big uh, Broadway stars who have hit the skids. Nicole Kidman plays a lifelong chorus liner mm-hmm. who never got the big time. Uh, and then it's, uh, I wanna, is it Andrew Rant? Yeah, Andrew Rannells. From uh, the Book of Mormon. From the Book of Mormon. He was one of the original cast of the Book of Mormon. If you've heard the soundtrack to the Book of Mormon, because he couldn't get tickets, because who could? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've heard his voice, and he's very talented. Um, he's He plays a guy who went to Juilliard and had like one small starring role in a short-lived sitcom, but his career never quite took off, and now he's just bartending. And uh, yeah, they all hop on a bus, go to Indiana, and they make it all about them. Mm-hmm. And... That's not a bad setup for a kind of bitter, mm. cynical film about uh, the the selfishness of celebrity. Yeah. About uh, how, uh, how out of touch the rich and the famous can be. Mm. But the problem is that even though so much of the material suggests that every single one of these people is absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. At least for most of the movie. The, the movie acts like they're not. And then they act like they are again. And the whole thing ends up feeling... Really discombobulated. Like, it's like Ryan Murphy did not understand the tone of this. Did not yeah, understand the, uh, the theme he was trying to convey. Because it's all over the place. This is a Broadway musical. It does have those big, bold, or- orchestral, bombastic Broadway-type songs. This Good. is not like a, a Candor and Ebb thing where things are a little bit more wicked or jazzy. This mm-hmm. is the... the Brassy. Pro- proper bombast. Brassy, uh, sassy. Yeah. It's a musical humdinger. <laughs> Broadway bombast. Uh, which is... A, a way to tell the story, but yes, there needs to be sort of a twinge of irony, mm-hmm. and we need to really read. We need to really feel how awful these people are, and we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meryl Streep kind of tries to do it with her performance, but mm-hmm. Meryl Streep is up for this. Like she, the, she, mm-hmm. she did Death Becomes Her. She can do this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I but feel like she's her back. well, her own talent. Really, she's trying to make this into like a fully realized, complex character, mm-hmm. and not this broad figure that we're supposed to kind of hate a little bit. Yeah, because I can imagine this. Imagine if this was a John Waters movie made in 1992. Yeah, yeah. this gets nailed. <laughs> Everything about this movie, same premise. Maybe even the same songs, mm. but just perfect because mm. John Waters would have a point of view and he would yeah, understand and, uh, when his characters 
sucked. And uh, another issue is that uh, Joe Ellen Pellman, who was there, was this big nationwide search to find the le- the girl who yeah. was denied the prom. Yeah, uh, her na- the character is named Emma. Uh, Emma is dull as dishwater. She has all of the drama, and mm-hmm. the whole uh, push and pull is between her and these Broadway stars who are trying to make it all about them. Yeah. Whereas she wants just something kind of romantic and intimate with her girlfriend. Yeah, she doesn't want this to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. The, and, and you would think this would become like a kind of an ace in the hole kind of deal. I thought that's where yeah. we were going. Have you ever seen this? It's a great Billy Wilder movie people don't talk about enough. Kirk Douglas plays a reporter who is reporting on a cave-in at a mine. And because this is a sort of if it bleeds, it leads kind of news story and he can milk this for headlines for days to help his flagging journalism career, he ends up manipulating the events so that it takes longer to rescue everybody. Mm. It is bitter and cruel yeah. and incredibly judgmental about people who would use actual real issues that affect people's lives just for themselves. Mm. I thought that's where prom would go. And maybe we'll pull back and have a happy ending, but like I thought that's where we would go, and it doesn't actually. Well, it's, In fact, they actually have very little to I'm do actually, or help. I'm kind of glad that they pulled back a little bit, because at the start I was getting a really strong South Park vibe, mm. where both the stars and the bigots were going to be painted with this broad brush of, of horribleness, yeah. and they were going to be equated which is something that uh, they, they do Tra- Trey Park, Parker yeah. and Ma- Matt Stone do a lot on South Park and a lot of their other projects. If you believe in anything, you're an asshole. Yeah, that's uh, that's the biggest sin you can commit in South Park is caring about something. Caring about anything. It doesn't matter yeah. if it what it is, if it's good or bad. Yeah. There's no judgment liberal, at all. whatever. Yeah. But if you have any sort of passion about the world around you and mm. don't just sort of go, eh, it's no big deal, mm. then so, you're a monster. Because yeah. that's the way it's starting out. It's presenting these big, broad, brassy, uh, Broadway assholes coming to this little, small, ultra-conservative town. Yeah. And everybody's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's like See, I think you could have found a balance with mm-hmm. that if you just said, like, the the issue isn't that the Broadway people are wrong. The mm-hmm. difference is that they're making it about them. Yeah. And that's the problem. And ultimately, everyone just starts losing sight of the fact that this is a really simple issue mm-hmm. with someone who just wants to go to prom with their date. Yeah. And... Again, that gets kind of lost. There's a lot of simple problems with the movie that are just brutal. Like, uh, there's a scene where uh, they give uh, Emma... They go go shopping for a big prom outfit. And when she's going shopping, she's wearing just whatever she was wearing. And she looks really cute like mm-hmm. she's got it's a nice look on her it befits her character and when she emerges from the prom she looks like she got a prom dress just like an off the rack it doesn't yeah. she doesn't look especially fabulous mm-hmm. it doesn't look like someone who really knew how to do makeup oh, yeah. like broadway style touched her like it's like nothing about her screams mm-hmm. like this is this is a makeover mm-hmm. and then there's something that, and the thing that one of the things that i found really distracting was nicole kidman who's a brilliant mm-hmm. performer we can all agree with that she has been cast as someone with no star power. Like, that's the <laughs> defining characteristic of her character is that but she doesn't she, have star power. But she's Nicole Kidman. But she's Nicole Kidman. Yeah, so you're what, waiting for her to do stuff and you realize, no, she's still background. She's got one song in like the second half of the movie. Yeah, but she, by then she the has dam- her number. But by then it's too late. The damage has been done. Mm. She's been there not doing things. Mm. It's like if Chekhov's gun was in every shot <laughs> and you're just waiting for Nicole Kidman to go off. And she does, finally, but she doesn't have anything to do with anything. That character could lift out of the movie really easily, actually. And it feels like a bit of a waste. 
I, I, I think she has a role because she's the one who ends up becoming Emma's friend near the end of the movie. I think any other uh, character could have done that. There, there's a lot of problems with this. It's, it's big. It's clunky. It's bloated. Uh, they included um, most of the songs, from what I understand, from yeah. the actual musical. So it's over two hours long at mm-hmm. the end of the day. Most of it isn't shot but, very well. You don't get a good sense of the choreography. Yeah, the the dancing unfortunately is not really put on display. There's a big dance number at the end, and it's like just a lot too much fast editing. Like yeah. I appreciated the energy, but I wanted to see actual dancing. Yeah. Like this, this is about is, uh, real Broadway people. Let them do real Broadway stuff. Yeah. And it, it's just yet another example of how, uh, modern filmmakers don't quite seem to understand how to shoot a musical, mm-hmm. how to just let the characters sing. Now I'll, I'll say this, the musical numbers are on. Yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty dead on. Uh, yeah. they, they don't, None make, of them make blew them, me away, but yeah. But the, I mean, they don't make the mistake of having people sing live on set or yeah. uh, everyone can sing. Yeah, everyone they just, can they, dance. They, they yeah. made sure everybody brought their A game. There are some really amusing songs. Uh, there's a, a number in the mall where they talk about how it's a gospel number, mm-hmm. and they talk about how pe- uh, a lot of uh, people pick and choose the parts of the Bible they like. Yeah, like oh, mm-hmm. we don't we don't believe in, or rather, they think mm-hmm. homosexuality is wrong because of the Bible, mm-hmm. and the whole song is pointing out other things that would send you to hell in the Bible mm-hmm. that you're just selectively ignoring because it doesn't suit the mm-hmm. narrative you had before you brought the Bible into it, yeah. which is a good idea for a song. But actually that's another one where I was like, theoretically this should work. There's some clever writing here. It's performed mm-hmm. well. The fact that it's in a mall <laughs> is weirdly distracting. And I actually feel like if you restage that out of a mall, Hmm. And you put that, I don't know, in, in like a church, a, in a church, <laughs> all of a sudden that becomes not just a good song that becomes a fucking moment mm-hmm. that becomes powerful, funny, but like pointed and like effective. And yeah, it just feels like they're never really nailing anything. Hmm. Like sometimes things are okay. Hmm. But they, like Keegan Michael Key is in this movie. Yeah, he's Ke- good in he's good in yeah, everything. Ke- right Keegan now. Michael he's, Key plays the the principal of the school, and yeah. he and uh, Meryl Streep have this sort of romantic arc between yeah. them. And I would, I all of their scenes together are great. I think they have wonderful chemistry together. They're okay. I never and, uh, quite bought it, but like it, he's still really good. And it's good to see Keegan Michael Key prove that he's a really rock solid actor yeah. and performer again and, uh, for the millionth time. And uh, the big climax of the film is a song called uh, My Restless Heart, mm. where uh, Emma decides to, rather than go like make it a big news story, just goes online and uh-huh. you know, tells her story. And she reaches out and uh, there's this wonderful sort of m- montage number of she singing along with a lot of other queer kids who yeah. have, just haven't made a connection yet. Yeah. And... Uh, that that part made me a little verklempt. That part's uh, sweet. I still feel like more could have been done with it. Like, well, like, <laughs> oh my god! What? I'm sorry. I, it's sweet. You, it's really really you, sweet. Your 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 shriveled raisin heart, sir. Well, no, I just feel like the movie is so broad that the mm. genuineness of that moment actually ended up feeling like a weird mm. contrast in a way that was like, okay, all of your Broadway was bullshit. Mm. YouTube video is the only way that we connected with people, you know? Well, yeah. It's just interesting. That's, that's, I feel like that's they could the, have... the lesson of is that the 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 younger generation has right. a different way of communicating and I wish than these have... Broadway celebrities. I wish they'd actually done that yeah. rather than do that in one scene and then yeah. never talk about it again. Yeah. You know? like, I just feel like there's more that could be done. That could have yeah. been bigger. That well, been better. A, a lot of could have been bigger and better about this movie because yeah. it's actually really clunky and it's actually really awkward and it doesn't really think out a lot of its themes. It could have been dark and dour and serious, mm-hmm. which musicals can be. Sure. Filmmakers tend to forget this. 
Remember when they made Chicago into a movie? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of critics seemed to like that, and they gave it an Academy Award? <laughs> when I, it, I sense some commentary here. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of editorializing going, I am a critic. Yeah. Um, that Chicago movie is terrible. Uh-huh. It's edited very badly, uh, just to cover up for the fact that most of the cast couldn't dance. Yep. A lot of them aren't quite there vocally. Uh-huh. Uh, and it doesn't, even though it, pretends to have sort of a wicked sense of humor. There's no wickedness in that movie. It's actually very safe. It's it's, actually it's, it's safe. Yeah. They try to like skew it in the ter- in uh in the direction of being really kind of glossy mm-hmm. and, and glitzy. And but, that's not what a musical like Chicago is about. Yeah. So they they said, oh okay, we're gonna have musical numbers but they're these big glitzy numbers in people's imaginations. It's like, no, you can actually, they're just singing. You can have it be kind of filthy. Then there was this weird tendency after Chicago Mm. came out for like young people who like weren't into theater yet, musical theater yet, Mm. who thought like, yeah, that's the way it should be. The musical theater should all be dream sequences in people's heads. I'm Mm. like, no, that's one way to do it. Mm. I'm not saying that's the worst thing in the world, but that's you haven't decoded musical theater. Musical theater is very literal. Yeah. These things are happening. And, I, sometimes I, you don't even get that from prom. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's a big junky mess, and ultimately, I found it really frustrating. I found it hard mm-hmm. to watch after a while. It's about two hours long, and boy, did it's, it not need two, to be two hours and twelve minutes long. Yeah, uh, it's a long movie, I'll, and I'll I say kept this. thinking it was wrapping up, and it never was. I I don't love this movie, but it sandpapered me away a little bit. Okay, uh, I, I fell in with its big clunky charm after a while. Okay. And, you know, it's it's like... It's got, like, a cult film built over it, or oh, you just think it's a little better than people are saying? Oh, golly, no. Yeah, and yeah. I I tuned in, because I kept on hearing that this was, like, an utter fiasco, and yeah. James Corden is awful, and everybody, it's just, just, just going to make you barf all over, and no, it didn't make me barf all over. It's not good. Mm. It's not a good film, but there were, uh, there's moments, and there's a good kind of musical earnestness okay. in the prom that I was glad to see. Okay. And I'm glad that they committed to the music, for goodness sake. Where, you know, unlike so many filmed musicals I've seen in re- of recent vintage that try to gloss over them or cover them up with really quick editing or let the actors who can't sing try to sing their own numbers. Yeah. Uh, they don't make a lot of rookie mistakes, but I do think they make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Um, from- so, so this was... a a Broadway musical in film form with, with all of the sort of glorious artificiality that comes along with that. It's not necessarily a good aesthetic choice, but it, they committed to it. And I appreciate that energy. I just feel like the energy, I feel like the energy, the energy that they got for like Broadway theatricality. Uh-huh. It's cool. Yeah. Broadway they got for like diva mentality is kind of cool. Like I kind of see where they were getting that from, but I feel like the kind of story this is this incredibly, queer story this incredibly theatrical story i mm. feel like it's being conveyed in a very cynical superficial manner for most of it and i mm. feel like there are other filmmakers who could have approached this exact same material and gotten something way more out of it regardless of choreography or whatever just like i felt the tone was off i felt like yeah i don't i don't i don't understand a lot of the creative decisions here and that and i've been thinking about them a lot and i ultimately just mm. think they don't cohere very well so mm. for me a lot of this movie was nails on chalkboard i'm not gonna oh, lie okay. well at, at the very least we had a, a mainstream feature film where uh there's a queer kiss right at the very end and an entire high school erupts in applause yeah cool 
And so, yeah, there's something else that happened in uh, Love, Simon. Yeah. It's like two boys kiss on a Ferris wheel and everybody goes, yay! And that's it's kind of cathartic. And that's nice. That's mm. very, very nice. There's nice stuff in here. And I think on some level, mm. the heart was in the right place. But I think the heart was like beating the wrong rhythm. Okay. Um, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about, while we're on uh, sort of weird, critically panned things <laughs> let's talk about the latest film from uh john patrick shanley mm, star uh, star of robot and the family <laughs> really i okay what there is this really horrendous movie with joe pataliano and and other a bunch of nobodies okay. called robot in the family it's one of the most like grating abrasive horrible movies you'll ever see you can find it on youtube okay john patrick shanley is credited as the robot whether or not that seems to me like it's one of those weird glitches on imdb where uh yeah maybe somebody has like the same or the similar name and they they accidentally mixed it it up but he has a credit on imdb as playing the robot in robot in the family that's absolute hold on a second i'm checking this he also won an academy award for moonstruck yeah (laughs) he plays a character named gold digger um Okay, well, I didn't know that. But yeah, he John Badger Shanley has had uh, a, a pretty dang good career as a director, but he's mostly celebrated as a screenwriter. He wrote Moonstruck, which we covered earlier this year in this Critical Name Streaming Club. Still mm-hmm. an amazing movie. Uh, he did Joe versus the Volcano. Um, he wrote the script for We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, which is one of the weirdest animated movies America has ever <laughs> produced. He also worked on the script for Congo, but nobody's perfect. Um, and, uh, more recently his, like his last, like big, big, big film was, um, he wrote the original play, adapted mm. it and directed the Academy Award nominated film Doubt. And the, the, the play not, not only won a Tony, but it also won a Pulitzer. So yeah. he's a very well-respected writer. Uh, he's now adapting one of his own plays. He wrote a play called Outside Mullingar and has now adapted into a film called Wild Mountain Time. Yeah. And it takes place in Cartoon Ireland. Yes. This, the, the, this Cartoon Ireland that Mm. takes place. And again, this is, this is hunkered very neatly into the quirky Mm. British slash Scottish slash Irish Isles comedy. Like when we're like a, we're in a small town, everyone's eccentric, and they're gonna do some stuff, and maybe some people will fall in love. And this is how we get films like Waking Ned Divine mm. or Green Fingers or um, uh, what's the oh uh, Save, Saving Grace, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill but Came Down Monty, a Mountain. Uh, this um, was a well, Full Monty was not in the small welcome town. Welcome to Whoop Whoop. That was Pretty Australian, close. but you know, same, same vibe, same thing. Yeah. Uh, this was an incredibly popular indie subgenre. In the 1990s, there was like seriously, there were these were all over the place, and a lot of them were cute. They were mm. very, very, they were very charming. Do you ever see the dish? That's another Australian one. This is a one. really yeah. good one. The dish is a really, mm. really good one. Please see the dish; it's wonderful. Um, I think it's actually New Zealand, but um, oh yeah, you're right, it's New Zealand. But uh, in any case, it's it's a perfectly fun setup for a light comedy. You get a big ensemble cast fun character mm. actors they all exist in their own little corner of the world where everything is sweet and innocent and all their problems are pretty small and it's a fun place to visit for a little while this, this most song... of them have the depth of a sheet of paper <laughs> and that's fine that's why we're here so the uh the the ensemble is jamie dornan is the main character he plays uh, a fellow who uh 
may or may not be descended from one family or another. There's these yeah. two rival families who have um, neighboring farms, and yeah. they've long since been at odds in in a vague, non-threatening sort of way. Yeah, like nobody's just, killed each other. Yeah. It's just there's and they, kind of and they can talk and have a beer, but there's <clears throat> yeah. just a general sort of like, no, you can't have my land. Uh, his, his father is played by Christopher Walken, who's Irish. Okay, the Irish accents. Mark. The Irish accents in this movie but, have been mocked ever since the trailer came out. Oh. And, and with good thoughts, <laughs> like like Jamie Dornan and Emily Blunt, they can kind of, they're well, kind Jamie, of getting away with. Jamie Dornan is Irish. I know, so like they can pull they, it off. They they sound okay. Emily Blunt's kind of okay. I don't know what the fuck Christopher Walken is doing. It's one of the most baffling things he's ever done in his career. Oh. And if you follow the career of Christopher Walken, that says something. <laughs> it's really, really, really a choice. Hmm. John Patrick Stanley has been confronted with this in interviews. I read an interview about this, and he was talking about how, like... Well, we got a star. We just ran No, it's not, even, it's not even Christopher Walken. Just, like, the Irish are mad about oh. how you're treating their country as, like, this fairy tale land and all the accents hmm. are wrong. And John Patrick Stanley, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with him, but this was his response. Uh, we needed to change the accents or no one else in the world could understand them. <laughs> that was his response, which is very harsh, oh, but that was wow. his justification. I think that's crap justification. My wife and I were trying to come up with uh, the term for these sort of jolly magical Irish films made by American filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she came up with Celtsploitation, which oh, I think is a good one. that's pretty good. I like that. She, she pronounced it Celtsploitation, whichever one you yeah. prefer. And this is like The Quiet Man. This is, yeah, yeah there's a ton of these. That, a lot of yeah. them are celebrated. And uh, the, the Irish stand-up comedian Dillian, Dylan Moran from yeah. the, the sitcom Black Books uh, has a, a bit in his stand-up routine. It's like, why, why do you always treat Irish people in a certain way in, in movies? You always think we're... we're his phrase was jolly fuckers with a pig under our arm and a twinkle in our eye. And uh, <laughs> well, look like, what we did you, you don't understand. We're, we're, we're all completely miserable. Don't you understand how miserable we, we are? We took St. Patrick's Day and we made it into a holiday about getting drunk and wearing green. That has mm. nothing to do with St. Patrick's Day. Nope. <laughs> or, or St. Patrick or Ireland, or Ireland yeah, at all. Nothing yeah. at all. It's crap. I mean, yeah, drinking, uh, but every country so likes to drink. This, so. this is this sort of American fantasy version of Ireland where everybody's very quirky and pleasant and has a twinkle in their eye. And, uh, Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan are about the same age. They grew up together. They're clearly destined to fall in love, but gosh darn it, they're just too shy to say anything. Yeah. Even though they're like very open and forthright and kind of quirky otherwise, they just can't bring themselves to say they well, just, they're and not love. broadly quirky they're clearly introverts but like yeah well, they, they, they've never sealed the deal they've never said the words the jamie dornan character is constantly described as being very odd and his only odd things is he talks he talked to a donkey in one scene and he has a metal detector he's, that he's constantly, constantly sweeping for around like, looking for, like, for gold for years he's been using a metal detector on the field between the houses between mm. uh, him and emily blunt and we find uh, out why later, and it's cute. The the, uh, the bad guy is the American cousin, played by John Hamm, who's he's, here to do evil land he's, stuff. He's actually not evil. It's just the whole thing is Christopher Walken he, doesn't want to evil leave. in function functionally. He, he's he's an obstacle. Mm-hmm. He's he's wants to buy Christopher Walken's land or inherit it, I guess. And Jamie Dornan's like, well, why can't I do it? I'm actually a farmer, and mm-hmm. he's just like a cousin. And he's just like, yeah, I just don't trust you. You're you're not good at stuff. Hmm. And uh, so that's the obstacle there. And the other thing is he meets and has immediate chemistry with Emily Blunt. So now there's a bit of a ticking clock on this because she has options. Hmm. 
Um, There's this completely useless aside where she actually takes a day trip to New York and goes on a date with John Hamm and they see a show. They see the ballet together. Yeah. She's always been told that she was the swan in Black uh, Black Swan in uh, (laughs) Swan Lake. So they um, go to see a, a performance of Swan Lake, and she cries. It's so all, damn all, all, quirky. All of all of that stuff in New York, like just rip it out of the movie. Doesn't really Sa- need to be. Save there. me twenty fucking minutes. I don't need like, it. You can just have John Hamm be there again. You really don't need to do it. You can you can go to a ballet in Europe. Mm. There's a t- like you don't have to go all the way to New York yeah. for the ballet. And, like, and you say there's a ticking clock element because the, the sale is inevitable. He's going to buy up one of the farms. And, yeah. Uh, and, well, and actually, and he's going to ask like Emily Blunt to marry him. Yeah, and yeah. So there's this whole thing where he's like on a plane getting to Ireland. And that part of the movie just sort of like well, <laughs> turns left at the last minute and fizzles out. There's this whole thing where it's like, oh, will, will Jamie Dornan take this last opportunity and finally tell Emily Blunt how she feels? Mm. Or vice versa. And every once in a while, we keep cutting back to John Hamm, who's still on that plane, because that's like an 18-hour flight. <laughs> that's a long flight. New York to Ireland? Yeah. yeah that's a long-ass long flight. So it's just sort of there. Like, that's a... Um, it's more like a nine-hour flight. Well, whatever. Yeah. Okay, I was thinking from L.A. You're right. Mm-hmm. From New York, it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. But still, it's a long flight. <sighs> I don't and hate then, this movie. You don't? No. Oh, gosh, because it's awful. I don't, the, the, I'm not pretending it's not... I, I, it's not ridiculous. I don't know what the hell they're getting at with this movie. I kind of we're, we're kind of sitting in this this quirky space with these quirky Irish people. Yeah. Some of whom some of whom are actually Irish. Yeah. And are are we supposed to be feeling the texture of the place? Because if that's mm. the goal, then they're not doing it right. No, I don't think it's. I'm goal. not getting a sense of the wonderful magic of the Emerald Isle. Uh-huh. Is it about the quirkiness of the characters and the the spaces they inhabit? Well, not really. There's a bar where they gather, but their patois and the conversations they have aren't particularly interesting. Is it about some sort sort of magical madness that's floating through these people's minds mm. and how yeah. there's all like a little bit of magic when people fall in love, like something yeah. like the secret of Rona Nish, which has a yeah. Selkie in it. Um, much better Irish film, by the way. Mm. Uh, no, no, I'm not, not I'm that. not feeling that. And then there's this big reveal at the end. And I, I was baffled from the reveal until an hour after the credits had rolled because I thought that there was some sort of slang I was missing. Oh, there was some, there was like a reference to something you were you weren't getting or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like I thought it was a reference no. or I it's thought actually, it was slang. It's actually no, it's profoundly actually, it's, literal. It's literal yeah. and yeah, and that's stupid. It's really stupid. <laughs> I, I, no, I actually I actually disagree with that. It's it's uh, odd and it comes completely out of left field. I totally agree with uh, that. But for me, that that ending oh. as weird as and, and the, a lot of people have been comparing this movie. And this is going to seem like a huge selling point, no matter how I put it. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have been comparing this movie to the Matthew McConaughey film Serenity. <laughs> it's um, not quite as extreme no, as no, Serenity. No, no, Like, seriously, that is hyperbolic. That is hyperbolic. If mm. you expect, if you saw the Matthew McConaughey movie Serenity, which, even though it's a bad movie, you should. Mm. Because it's one of the most, in terms of plotting, one of the most wrong-headed movies I have ever seen. <laughs> the choices that are made in that movie do not add up, nor are they explicable by any measure. I don't get what they were thinking, mm. and none of the explanations that I have heard make the film good. <laughs> it's a really, really, really strange film before the twist, and then the twist is absolutely mind-bogglingly weird. Mm. And that's not an exaggeration. You should see it if you haven't. If you have seen it and you've heard this movie compared to it, here's seriously, here's what I thought. 
when I heard ahead of time, someone had said, "There's a there's a bit of the, in this movie mm. you're just not. It's going to come out of nowhere. It's going to blow your mind." I thought when I was watching the movie because the, the accents were so fake mm. and it's so kind of just cheesy in its adherence to this you know quirky but kind of. Uh, uh, maybe not outmoded, but certainly retro genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought we were going to find out that this wasn't Ireland. This was like an Ireland theme park. <laughs> and like, and like, yeah. that, like the movie Austin Land, where you like you pay money and you get to live out a Jane Austen book. But we weren't seeing like afterwards, like Christopher Walken's just like, oh... Oh, when does Joe Dirt 2 get made? <laughs> uh, can't keep doing this on the side. Like, it's... I thought that was where it was going. I thought it was going to be like that extreme. Uh, it's it's not that. No. no, no it just no. is a weird thing that happens. And when I saw the weird thing... And it's frustrating because I wish I could talk about it in detail. Because hmm. I think it would be easier if I could. I think it has less to do with quirk or travel log. And I think it has more to do with the fact that when... People are introverted, either by personal choice or because of the culture in which they live, mm. which requires them to bottle things up. They develop rich inner worlds, maybe even inexplicable inner worlds, and it becomes very difficult to invite people into those worlds. Okay. And I find that this is a movie that is about people who maybe don't understand themselves and maybe don't even have the language necessary to define who they are, what they identify as, and what they want. And if they did, this might be a much different, much simpler movie with also sort of an un- atypical element. Um, and mm. I do, and I honestly think that there, there's seriously, because there are like certain uh, uh, terminologies that could be used that could have just very clearly at the end of the movie goes, oh, so this is what's going on. Mm. Cool. All right. I'm, I'm fine with that. That's fine. That's I, that, cool. Didn't know. That that's it. That's I, I all it had to be. But because but this is they don't st- have the language to express mm. themselves in sort of these modern terms of what this revelation actually would be considered in, like, say, our you know culture here in California, mm. it just comes out of nowhere and it feels really really weird. But to me, this is like not the weirdest thing ever. Well, I mean, that would make sense if these people were repressed or quiet in any sort of way, but they're actually well, very, they're very comfortable and a little bit, but he's not like so quiet and awkward that he can't talk to people. Yeah, but it's actually that, that, very that, social it's and not, open. It's not all or nothing. They're, they're, they're he's warm, not, he's communicative not, people who have long, uh, lengthy and open relationships with one another. His problem is that he's called weird by other people no, no, I don't think without actually being weird. I think that's a misinterpretation. I really, especially, at least when it comes to Jamie Dornan. Emily <laughs> Blunt, right. yeah, she's actually very forthright and mm. she, she, she keeps telling people who she is and everyone just sort of ignores the things that actually like really define her because they want to uh, project right. whatever they want. Jamie Dornan can have a conversation. Jamie Dornan grew up with a lot of people. There's a certain intimacy to his surroundings and he's able to talk to them, but Mm. he's not sharing. He's not really expressing how he feels all the time. And when he does, it's incredibly difficult. I think it's a matter of degrees. Introvertedness is Mm. not all or nothing. And it's a matter of who you know, it's about who you're comfortable with. It's about what you're comfortable Mm. expressing. And I don't think it's, that's outside the realm of plausibility. Okay. For me. Based on my observations, based on the introverts that I know. This does not at all smack as a tale of introversion at all. Okay. Well, I I disagree, uh, but fair enough. 
Um, I, I'm not it's, saying it's, it's great. It's just a it's just a badly told, completely baffling tale. I I I, I kind of like mm-hmm. how unapologetically it dives into this quirky small town subgenre, which I grew up with and have some mm-hmm. affection for. Is it one of the better examples of it? Hell no. <laughs> I rec- we recently did a podcast where we talked about the best movies with the long titles ever. I mm. brought up The Englishman Who Went Up the Hill and Came Down a Mountain. Mm. I recently rewatched it. That movie still slaps. Okay, <laughs> that movie is great. There's good, really, really good versions of this that work from top to bottom. This one is not one of them, but it had a certain charm to it. And the ending was so kind of like, huh, that... I, I don't know. I found myself oddly charmed by it. And it and based on how I would describe those events, perhaps better than the characters could, hmm. a part of me was just like, you know what? That's actually kind of positive and, and progressive and kind of cool. <laughs> but the characters don't have that... Hmm. Uh, uh, the characters don't have the words. And I think hmm. that's why it comes out really, really weird. Um, it's clearly supposed to be a moment that in the play makes the audience go... Huh? Did we hear that right? <laughs> what? Like, it's clearly meant to be a long pause mm. as the audience, like, shuffles in their seats and maybe has a, a, has a nervous laughter or something and they don't know what the hell they just heard. And then we just go with it mm. because that's what life is. I don't know. I didn't hate this movie. I don't okay. hate this movie. A part of me kind of uh, likes this movie, but mm. I don't love it. It's nowhere near the best films of the year or anything like that. But mm. I think uh, I think I'm on the movie's wavelength more than a lot of other people. Okay. Well, For better or worse. Well, I did hate that movie. <laughs> Fair enough. I hated the prom. All right. I hated the prom. Right. You connected a little bit with the prom. I connected a little uh, and, bit and, with Wild Mountain Time, despite of, and perhaps even because of some other flaws. All right. I think that's fair. Okay. That's life. Moving on. Gunda. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> Gunda. I didn't see Gunda. Right. Gunda is a film. Oh, good. Moving on. About a pig. Ooh. It is a, like uh, there is no narration. And there is no context. It is just nature documentary footage of a pig on a Ooh. farm. At the very beginning of the movie, uh, the pig gives birth. It has a bunch of little piglets. And golly, they're cute because they're little piglets. Mm-hmm. We see them uh, rolling out of their mother and immediately uh, nursing. Crawling over to her belly and nursing. Mm-hmm. And we get to see her raising her piglets and taking them around the farm. Occasionally we'll have a little intermission with a chicken. Okay. The chickens will just sort of cluck and walk around. Is it just a nature documentary? Or? Just a nature documentary. Hmm. Uh, and is there a narrator th- there's or anything? No or? narrator. Huh. No narration. Hmm. No nice. context. It's just beautiful black and white photography of these animals. Huh. And we are... And it's not edited in such a way where we're tempted to sort of anthropomorphize them or come up with like, there's not like these cute little dramas. They're just animals being animals. There's a lot of long sustained takes of these Mm -hmm. animals just doing their thing. There's a a chicken uh, that at one point in its life lost a leg and hops around on one foot. One point it gets caught in a fence and then it gets out. Yay. (laughs) Then the cows are let out. Oh no. The cows just sort of walk around. Ah. And we get to look at the cows for a little. Yay! Um, then near the end of the film, a truck pulls up. We just we see we see no people in this movie, but we do see like vehicles moving around. But there's no humans on camera. Okay. And I don't like where this is going. We hear oinking, uh-huh. and then the mom is alone. The piglets are gone, and the mom panics. This was uh, this was a film that was 
executive produced by Joaquin Phoenix, who, if you recall his Oscar acceptance speech last year, oh, yeah. uh, was There's, about about animals, b- about animal uh, animal cruelty and how we shouldn't eat animals, and about vegetarianism. So he is doing the best he can not to uh, humanize animals or make them seem like some kind of like magical human mm. equals, just showing that they are beings that have their own animal-like dramas on their own animal level. Yeah. And we, through just sort of looking at animals and the way that uh, the the camera looks at them and the way they've been edited, we do start to get a sense of their emotional lives. Yeah. The way animals have emotions. Yeah. And, uh, your heart really goes out to these creatures uh, in in sort of an affectionate way. And I think it is incredibly effective in conveying the life of an animal as it is yeah. without romanticizing it, without filthying it up, does it, without that kind of weird Herzogian indifference. Yeah. But does it? It sounds like because here's the deal. It's obviously there's it, there's a narrative simplicity to it. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously it obviously has a message. Mm. Clearly. Is it subtle or is it like just hitting mm. you over the head with a hammer? But it's a welcome message to be hit with a hammer with. Because well, I wonder because like, that it would, have thing, to, it would have to be subtle because it's just animals. No, no, but like the, the ending, the ending oh. would put this whole thing into sharp relief. Where here's yeah. what this is all about. So all of that time mm. you were spent connecting with these animals was to draw attention to what we do to them and how mm. humans are like this invasive, dangerous, no, absolutely violent force. Yeah, these are so these is, are farm animals. Yeah. They're being raised for a purpose, right. uh, for humans purpose right so i'm just saying that ending we're, we're going to be taking something from these animals it's not you made it sound like mm. this is very tranquil and sweet and mm. then at the end you go the horror mm. and then credits and that may be mm. the case and that may even be good well, but I, I don't does even, it feel like a scare film i don't i don't even want to describe it as tranquil and sweet it's mm. like i said it's it's very matter of fact ah. it's it's documentary in the purest form i i sound like you were connecting with a, a film i uh, i recommend not too often just because it's so obscure and nobody ever bothers to look it up, but mm. I, I saw an Italian film called Le Quattro Volte uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, which is partly do- like nature documentary footage, mm-hmm. and there's this one long sustained shot in that movie of a dog. Yeah, uh, It sees somebody leaving. It's like sort of running across town trying to alert people. It looks like the dog is just being a dog. I don't think the dog was even really trained. Yeah, But we do get a good sense as to how this dog in its own doggy way is reacting to the world around it. Yeah. This is animals reacting to the world around it. Uh, and just looking at them and we get a sense of, you know, thinking in the really rudimentary sort of way, what the world looks like from their point of view. The camera's really yeah. low to the ground a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, it's natural light. We do get to see like, some man-made uh, things, but mostly it's just the animals keeping to themselves. I guess my point is that from a narrative perspective, mm. from a structural perspective, because mm. it has an ending, you know, mm. uh, not so much a twist, but, you know, a, a reversal. Um, it, it's all building up to something. And I'm curious because this seems like the kind of thing that could easily have been done in a short. How long is this? Mm. Uh, it's about 90 minutes. About 90 minutes. Mm. Okay. 
does it feel long or does it feel like it, it are you just totally swept up in it or <laughs> it it feels like nature documentary footage I mean, right your but, mileage may vary but that doesn't mean it's good mm. nature documentary footage it doesn't mean it's like captivating nature documentary footage it could mm. just be some footage we found in a can like it but it, it, it you're absorbed in it you're able to enjoy appreciate Absol- feel yeah, it absolutely okay. I, all right the idea. I guess we're trying to decode the experience and not okay. just like find out what it is. I guess mm. is my point. Well, I mean, it, it it gets sort of that immediate emotional reaction from just cute animals. Mm-hmm. Watching little piglets rolling around is really cute. I mean, there's a, enough time passes that we get to see the piglets grow up. Piglets, from what I understand, grow very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when you see Babe, I think uh, in the movie Babe. I think they use like several dozen pigs just because pigs grow so quickly yeah. that they they couldn't. The movie takes place ro- over a short period ro- of time. Rotating yeah. through pigs just to get through the shoot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's true with anything where you're using but, uh, like a young animal. And you got to have a bunch. And and they're really really cute. But this is not treacly. This is not trying to you know, tug at your heartstrings with their sort of cuteness. There's a an almost non art to the art. Mm. It's really beautifully photographed, but. Uh, the shots are so sustained and the animals are just being animals that you do get the sense that the filmmakers are trying to stay out of it as much as possible. They're not trying to construct a narrative. They're Mm. trying to point out that animals have their own narrative and we're just going to look. And if we look, we might be able to see what it is. Okay. So, so it's good then. It's good. Great. Cool. I like, I liked it a lot. All right, and well, those little piggies are so cute. The I first, like piggies, they're cute. First 10 minutes of the movie, I was just like, oh, no, no, it's a piggy. There's yeah. another piggy. Look at those little piglets. They're so cute. Yay. Just using my cute voice. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about the new film from Julia Hart. Uh, Julia Hart uh, has had a busy last few years. In fact, she actually had another feature film that came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, she directed Miss Stevens. Uh, which was some critically acclaimed. Uh, Fast Color was a bit of a breakout. Mm. Uh, I like I like Fast Color. I feel like Fast Color. I actually miss Fast Color. Mm. Uh, I need to get her right back around to it because everyone tells me it's great. And then earlier this year, she did a film for Disney called Star Girl, which was, I believe, a YA adaptation or felt like a YA adaptation uh, about. Um, well, frankly, it's not that great. It's about a, uh, it's about a young kind of, musician, right? Yeah, uh, it's about it's about a, a really nondescript kind of boring teen dude. And the really fascinating manic pixie dream girl who walks into his life. Oh, God. It ends up ending better than that, but mm. it, it hits a lot of the tropes really, really hard. I wasn't a huge fan. <clears throat> um, but uh, her latest film is a gritty crime film called I'm Your Woman. Uh, this stars Rachel Brosnahan uh, as a woman who uh, she's married. Her husband goes off to work a lot, and she's just sort of left at home. They tried to have a baby, did not work out. And so she's just sort of living the mm. life of not so much a trophy wife, but sort of a bored wife. Mm. One day, this is hus- the ni- 1970s. Yeah, it's in the 1970s. One day, her husband comes home with a baby, and says, "This is yours now," and she's like, "What? Yeah, it's yours now. You can name it. Be a mom. Go for it." She's like, "Oh, I didn't know we were doing okay." And so now she's got mm-hmm. a baby. And she's stressed out, but she's not put off by this. No. She actually takes to the role pretty quickly of yeah. taking care of this child. Yeah, it's it's different and, and mm. weird, but like she she's committed to it and she loves the baby and and that's kind of odd. And you're thinking to yourself as an audience, that's not how adoptions go. How did th- how did this happen? And that's when the shit hits the fan and a guy walks in and says, Hey, your husband killed a local crime boss and now you're on the run. Oh, uh, she doesn't get that information until later. That's pretty clear. The guy, that he the guy did comes bad. in 
Shannon yeah. says, you need to get out of here. Yeah. It's like, can I pack anything? No. Yeah. Here's a suitcase with $200,000 in cash in it. Yep. Uh, we're going to get this other guy. His name is Cal. Yeah. He's going to take you to a new house. You're going to have to just live there and not talk to people yeah. there for a you little bit. You can never talk to anybody. You're just going to live in this and, house. And we have to do it right now in yeah. the middle of the night with the baby. Yeah. So clearly shit went down and mm. quickly we find out what I said. So I jumped the gun on the mm. narrative a bit. But yeah. So her, her husband's into organized crime. He did a bad thing. And now she is potentially going to be killed or used as leverage. Either way, she's got a big old target on her back and she is on the run. And that describes the majority of the movie mm. of her being on the run. And that's that. Mm. And she isn't involved in the action. She isn't, she has no agency to speak of. And a lot of the movie is about how just how weird that is to be mm. on the periphery of something dangerous and not have any control over your life. And the movie sort of makes the equation of this kind of extreme scenario to basically just being a bored housewife. Well, I think what it's doing is uh, deconstructing the genre a little bit. Sure. There are gangsters malls in all the gangster movies, yeah. right? Very she, rarely uh, do they get a movie to themselves. Yeah. She, uh, she's the wife of a thief. Mm-hmm. who does crime stuff. What does he do? We never see it. Yeah. In fact, we only see him in those early scenes. Yeah, he never comes <clears> back. It's it, Whether he, he lives or dies, he, this yeah, is her he, movie from he, here on he out. He may yeah. have been killed at one point, but we never see it, and we don't know if it, that's true or not. Yeah. Uh, she, all she hears is, everything she <clears throat> hears after a while is like second and third hand. And what I think uh, Julia Hart is doing is pointing out that the women in gangster movies, mm-hmm. in most crime movies, are treated as disposable living pawns that gangsters use as leverage over other gangsters. Sure. And And we never look into their lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they do get involved, uh, it's usually in that, like in that movie, the kitchen, if you remember Mm. the kitchen, I actually didn't Um, see that one uh, underrated. I think I I thought it was actually pretty good. Um, Where uh, uh, the, that's a movie about three women whose uh, gangster husbands go to prison and they decide to take over the crime business for them. Yeah. And it's uh, Melissa McCarthy, Tiffany Haddish, and Elizabeth Moss. And it's actually pretty good. That's good star power. And the three of them yeah. are really good together. Um, Domino Gleason is in it. It's got a really good yeah. cast. Actually, the, the, the one movie I kept thinking of was John Cassavetes as Gloria. Oh, uh, yeah. Which yeah. stars Jenna Rollins mm-hmm. as a gangster's mall, you know, mm-hmm. a sexy lady who hangs out with gangsters and then when a kid is like i think he's a witness to like a murder that her boyfriends Mm. or boyfriend's men committed um she forms like an emotional connection to that kid and she ends up betraying all of these dudes that she was basically just a hanger on for and ends up becoming their greatest threat Mm. it's not as much of an action movie as people sometimes describe it as there's only like one shootout in it but it's it's really good Mm. and it's a totally different perspective on the genre and it really works but I appreciate this perspective on the genre because this is not about stepping up and doing the man's actions. This is not this is not about finding agency within the system. This is about trying to stay healthy and human outside mm-hmm. of it when the system is the thing that's sort of pushing you around and changing your destiny without any of your without any of your consent. I agree to a point. Mm. I think uh, th- I think the the film ultimately reaches a climax where mm. um our, our where Rachel Brosnahan has and the people that she teams up with over the film played by Renza mm-hmm. Kenne and um, uh, Marsha Stephanie Blake 
they end up getting more drawn into the quote unquote action mm. part of the movie. Uh, and actually a really great sequence. I think it's really suspenseful, wonderfully shot. Um, but I think they end up getting pulled a little bit more into the violence than that theme maybe mm. would support. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I think you're, you're largely right. My point was, I think that the opening scene of the movie, uh, draws a parallel between, you know, the genre and the mm. genre deconstruction that you're talking about and the expectation in, uh, uh, you know, the history of Western culture of, uh, women's domesticity. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you, you're over here mm. and the men will do stuff and occasionally it will affect your life in ways. And you're just gonna have to live with that. And, and even yeah. her, even her domestic situation, which is something she longed for. Yeah. She gives a speech about how she this really, her, really, really yeah. wanted to be a mom. Uh, is actually something that's thrust upon her when it's convenient for the man. Yeah. So every everything in her life is dictated by this guy who's not even in her, in her life. Yeah. And I think this is ultimately a film about her liberation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I appreciate this story of a gangster's mall finding emancipation better than something like Harley Quinn, mm. which is a, a similar not, type of a tale. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's still trying also, to hit all of these really broad beats and it, it's, mm. it can't possibly I mean, that, convey that, this message. That, the way that, that film, that film's does. about you know, a comic book action yeah. comedy. And it this still one's has a to lot hit more all those, uh, like, gritty. Um, yeah, this, still, that one still has to hit all the mainstream entertainment beats, which ultimately undermines, that message a little mm. bit. And this one has the freedom to be not commercial. Yeah. And there's, there's so, actually long sequences of just her living her life yeah. and Oh, good golly. The 1970s production design. That's true. You can that's, smell that shag carpet. That's very real. That linoleum is authentic. Those, yeah. uh, it's, and it's not like, not in a sexy sort of way. It really captures a lot of the, the drab interiors of the 1970s yeah. really perfectly and makes them feel not beautiful, but at least cared about. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot I like about this hmm. movie. I do think it's, a, it's an overall very strong film. My only real issue with the film is, uh, the first two thirds of the movie is Rachel Brosnahan waiting and having things explained to her. Hmm. I feel it drags a smidge. Uh, it, um, I think, I think after a while, I think after, I think a movie could have picked up the pace a little right. quicker. I, 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 I that's, really that's, appreciated that slow pace. That's the point. It, yeah. I realize that's the point, but I think it's also just because, you have a reason to do something doesn't always mean you always nailed it. Or in this case, I think you gave me too much of a good thing. Mm. I think that part of the movie is it's important that it lasts a while. It's important that it have this feeling, but at some point I was ready for the movie to start wrapping up because <laughs> I did get the gist of it and um. we're not changing things that much all the time. Mm. So for me, bit of a pacing problem in the middle, but otherwise a very, very strong crime film, mm. a very good point of view. I like the whole cast. Um, I didn't love it, but I do think this yeah, was an interesting film. Was the lead Rachel Brosnahan? Yeah, Rachel Brosnahan. I, I, I She's never seen. I've never seen her before. She's really good in this movie. I think I've seen her a couple of little things. It's like yeah, the first. She, major I, like role. I, I yeah. think I've seen her. Like I've seen movies she was in, uh, yeah. but I, I didn't note her until She's now. She's on the marvelous Miss, uh, Mrs. Maisel, which I haven't seen. But so, she's uh, Mrs. Maisel in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, is it Maisel? I yeah. haven't even seen it. I don't know. She's, but yeah, that's, <laughs> but that's yeah, her. That's, she's she's, that's a, she's not a, a big deal. That's not a show I've seen. But yeah, she's a here, big deal. here she's... Uh, yeah. Here she gives this really good performance about... Uh, yeah. Where she really gets to... She's swept up in this uh, situation that's beyond her control, but she never seems... Uh, 
timid in, in this situation. She never yeah. seems passive to it. She's just trying to survive as best she can. She mm-hmm. actually uh, and she's not and she, has, so she doesn't want to be a strength. part of it. Yeah, yeah. She just has to. Yeah, and, that's, and, that's and she has good chemistry. And all of the other characters are people that she actually like develops mm-hmm. a little bit of a rapport with, and, and they're different relationships. And, and with each say, one. Frankie Frazon's yeah. really good in this movie, and and that baby, oh man, yeah, it's good baby. <laughs> that that is a smiley it's sweet a, little it's baby. A cute kid. Mm. It's a cute kid. Anyway, I'm a bit mixed. I'm a bit more mixed on it, I think, than you are. Okay. But yeah, I do I, think it's I, a very. Good I really film. liked it. I really liked Tommy Lauren. Let's move on to Funny Boy. Tell me about right. Funny Boy. I didn't say uh, this. Oh, speaking of being mixed, um, this is the latest film from Deepa Mehta, who did uh, Fire, Earth, and Water. Uh, those are three different movies. Okay. Uh, she's actually a, a pretty prolific filmmaker um, uh, from India. She has done. Uh, gosh, what are some of her other movies? Um, I saw a movie that she did. Oh gosh, what was it called? Anatomy of Violence. I saw a film she did called Anatomy of Violence. Okay. Uh, here she's telling a love story of a young boy who is growing up in Sri Lanka. Uh, right before the events of the rather violent Sri Lankan civil war. Uh, the main character is, uh, well, he's called a funny boy. Uh, we see him in the opening scenes uh, sort of play acting a wedding. And the young girl that he's playing with is dressed in a tuxedo and he's dressed in a sari with lipstick. Okay. And his father pulls him aside and, and kind of starts using terms like not really speaking to him directly that he's a funny boy. Funny boy means he's gay. They understand that he's gay and he uh, is being sort of repressed by a lot of these uh, restrictive uh, social norms that he's uh, being raised around. Luckily he has a very forward thinking aunt who takes him aside a lot and tells him things like, you have, uh, you can have like a little secret and she's going to paint his toenails and ex- sort of explain to him that he is the diva and mm. he's allowed to be as, as flamboyant, as open as, as he wants. Uh, he is uh, Tamil and she's Tamil as well. And yep. she's dating a Sinhalese man. Okay. And these are the, the two groups who went to civil war in, in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And their forbidden romance, it seems like something that she's just going to uh, put her foot down and live through. And they're going to actually be uh, forward and progressive. And for a a few brief fleeting moments, you think this is going to be about rising above and surviving. And then the real world invades and some really horrific acts of violence are beset on these people. She Mm. ends up marrying somebody else uh, and her, her will is completely broken. We then flash forward to the main character's uh, university years okay. it's played by a different actor now and he ends up finding another young boy his age in college mm-hmm. who is really into David Bowie and mm-hmm. boy George and uh, it doesn't take them both long to figure out that they're both funny boys uh, had this film stayed on the tack of these two boys romance it would have been great mm-hmm. uh, maybe light Maybe a little bit, uh, not necessarily hugely substantial, but a very sweet romance. The problem is in the second half, it loses a lot of focus. And all of a sudden it starts switching back and forth between this love story and a lot of the details of the Sri Lankan Civil War and sort of specific acts of violence. And it becomes incredibly predictable when they're going to be caught doing X, when the violence is going to fall, the reactions to the violence, where the family is going to move. This is all very typical drama. Uh, now this, this is, uh, an Indian film and 
in my experience, Indian films do tend to play a lot broader. Mm. Now, I, I do have to say that my experience with Indian film is only the imports we get here in the States. It's pretty limited. It's yeah. not going to be as broad as somebody who lives in the country, but uh, it does have a, a, a melodra- melodramatic streak that I think works against it. Because there was so much uh, honesty and so much sweetness in those opening scenes, I was kind of hoping it would stay on that level, something a little bit more personal. When it gets to the broad sweeping arm of history, Mm. it starts to blur a little bit. And so by the end, it feels a little bit dissatisfying. Uh, But up until that point, at least I was having a good time. This this one's on Netflix. Uh, Cool. I, I, I have nothing to add. That, I was, that sounds uh, I was okay. thrilled to see, oh, look, it's a Sri Lankan queer drama. RSVP, RSVP, I want to see that one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I was kind of disappointed. At that's, that. that's a shame. Well, hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad we know. Yeah. Um, all right, well, moving on, let's uh, wrap up their new releases with the latest film in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. That's right, this is the fourth episode release. And this is... Maybe the smallest one, at least in runtime. It's barely an hour. <laughs> it's 67 minutes. Yeah, it's 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 really, really quite punchy. Uh, this is Alex Wheatle, which is the uh, based on a true story of an author who uh, spent some time in prison and also uh, was in part of the uh, reggae movement in Brixton. Mm. And uh, this is the story of his life as a, as a young boy in foster care uh, who, as a young, young, young man... Uh, starts uh, suddenly discovering culture. I have some now. <laughs> and for me, those are the best parts of the movie. It's just him being introduced to, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out you're part of a community. And uh, you, we, we wear the, cool clothes and here, we listen to cool music. Here are the, the shops we, t- we go yeah. to. Here's the, the language we use with one another. And, the, yeah. and like the sort of the joy on his face as mm. he realizes that he's part of something and he isn't just alone in a system, mm. right, which is abusive as we see on, more than, on way too many occasions. Uh, is uh, boy, is that infectious and sweet and, and really, really nice? And he ends up moving into crimes to support his reggae habit. <laughs> like he needs more to, or less. He needs to start committing crimes yeah. so he can like get himself set up as a DJ and like and th- then of course there's tragedy that occurs and well, he, uh, yeah. you can look up Alex Wheatle and uh, he's a real real author and you can read his books. Uh, he was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, for taking part in the 1981 Brixton riots, uh, just a, a big a riot that took place in Brixton in 1981, yep. and uh, a lot. And this film flash flashes back and forth between his sort of growing interest in his own community and his time in prison. Yeah, and uh, sort of the all of his rather negative run-ins with the police who abuse him relentlessly. Was it really life and in prison? Because it feels like in the movie it doesn't feel like he was in there that long. Well, he wasn't in there that long, but he oh, was sentenced to life. Got in prison. it. Okay, I, I don't know the full story. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, for for the sake of clarity, there we go. Mm. Um, but yeah, but uh, he uh, and yeah, he has conversations with his cellmate, and you can see. I, I love the way it sort of flips back and forth between that idealism you were talking about mm-hmm. and the complete bitter resignation that he would end up experiencing. Mm. And there are several shots after he's been arrested mm. where the, he's, his face is on the ground and the camera just sort of zooms in on his face and he's wearing this expression of this again, th- this again. Yeah. This is something that's just going to keep happening. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, so we get the arc of how he used to be really optimistic, mm-hmm. how 
this racist system broke him down and put him in prison. Yeah. And how he was able to kind of rediscover himself. Yeah. Uh, and and I feel like the the a chronological storytelling was a, a good way to convey that I, because we got to see the uh, sharper juxtaposition between who he was and who he became. In theory, yes, mm. I think this is this is a film that works a little bit better on paper than I think it does in practice for me. Mm. Um, I think it's it, everyone's in it really good. Uh, mm. Shay Cole plays Alex Weedle for the majority of the film. There's another actor plays him as a as a young boy, um, and he's excellent. Mm. Um, I th- think that the film kind of deftly portrays the various states of being the uh joy the rage mm-hmm. whether it's focused inward or outward um i think that's all there i think actually the short run time here does the film a little bit of a disservice i feel as though they're trying to cram in so much of like a life so many multitudes mm-hmm. that i feel as though the fact that the film is a little plotless, I mean, like the events that occur, yeah. but in a traditional story structure doesn't quite exist here. That's not inherently a negative, but because it, it's a little formless and because it ends up feeling like so much of a through line regardless, it feels like we didn't really maximize our time. Mm. So for me, the best parts are when it throws all of the narrative out and it just lives in the world with Alex Weedle, when he's just being a DJ, when he's just getting his hair cut, when mm. he's just making arrangements to like buy records on layaway, which he's not supposed to be able to do, but he just needs records, damn it. <laughs> um, all of those bits for me are the parts of this movie that are truly sublime. There's a chunk towards the end uh, which ends up basically tr- turning almost on a dime into poetry, literal poetry. Uh, yeah. Uh, that is also sublime. Mm. Uh, and But because the movie is kind of formless in some respects, um, it, part, of it does feel, part of it does feel like it just kind of sits there a little bit, hmm. and it doesn't quite have the punch it would maybe if that came in at a certain moment and had a proper setup and like a fall off, like a denouement. Like, I don't know. I, I, I appreciate not telling the story in a conventional way, but I do think that the absence of convention required them to find a different kind of focus. And I think the best parts of the film are when it's unfocused. And I mm. think the parts of the film that don't work are because they were trying to shoehorn focus in where they, where they were acting like there was not. Uh, and you could use the same criticisms for Red, White, and Blue, the previous chapter in Small Axe. Yeah, but that one uh, I feel it's, like had a bit more of a through line, though. Like, that one it, had a bit more a of, like, l- a... It had a little bit more of a through line, And they were their antagonists, you know, like... Its strengths came from uh, the moments when it eschewed conventionality. Uh, when it like but it, it could uh, fall we, we, back we talked on, about like, how genre tropes you know like it had that element we did talk about though how it, it sort of ends at the right moment whereas other movies lesser movies mm-hmm. would perhaps like tacked on an entire other act where they there's like all these confrontations and there's like a bigger climax in this Agreed. one it's just about sort of sitting there and observing that these things have happened mm-hmm. and that is, is what i'm seeing is the through line of these small acts films now that we've seen four of them <clears throat> where there's a lot of moments where we get to sort of sit and ponder and look around and sort of absorb the scenario more than get lost in a plot or story. Lover's Rock, for instance, doesn't really have a story. It's just about sure. a night. 
but it that's... doesn't pretend to. Is yeah. my point? It doesn't really. It doesn't really say like. Whereas, yeah, but we're uh, gonna have a beginning, middle, and end here. We're getting someone through a character arc, which Alex mm-hmm. Weedle is. Yeah, we're and Mangrove was the most story driven because that's actually about a court case. And I still haven't caught up yeah. to it. I will soon. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, the entire first chunk of Mangrove is just sort of people at the Mangrove restaurant and yeah. figuring out like w- what they feel right now and whether where their community is right now. Mm. Lover's Rock is just hanging out. Uh, and Red, White and Blue is uh, it's a cop drama. Yes, but I don't think it's solely a cop drama. I think it's more about pondering and looking at and figuring out how we need to emotionally traverse this racist system that we're lost inside of. My point is that they can mm. use some things that we know about how cop stories are told as mm. shorthand. Yeah. And that allows the film the, uh, that allows us to be grounded in the film for, so that when it takes a different turn and becomes mm. unconventional, there's no sense of being lost in it. Whereas I feel like Alex Weedle doesn't really have that. Well, it does. It, it follows the tropes of biopics because Alex, Alex Weedle is a real person. And yeah. uh, so I, I've, there's even the scene where he got like, the scene where he's just sort of like spitballing and writing his hit, which is my least favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, the scene I'm talking about, uh, dear listeners, mm-hmm. like uh, when June Carter cash is just kind of strumming and I figuring feel out like him in some kind r- of ring, ring of, of fire, fire. Yeah. or uh, when uh, uh, Kim, in... Kim Fowley and uh, uh, runaways mm-hmm. like kind of writes cherry bomb on the spot. And it's like, yeah. I'm feeling cherry it's really painful because that's not the way inspiration works. And that's not how writers write. My favorite example of that is actually in the movie Crossroads with Britney Spears. Oh no. Because this, oh, she sings, I'm not a girl, not yet. A yeah. Woman, so right? in, in Crossroads, Britney, this movie's amazing. I did not but, see Crossroads. Crossroads, Britney Spears, <laughs> Britney Spears plays a, uh, a science whiz car mechanic, uh, who's also a poet and doesn't realize she's also a great singer. Um, and as she's going on this cross country trip to find her, her birth mother who abandoned, her and her dad. She's played by Kim Cattrall. It's the best scene in the movie. Uh, she meets a hunk dude, mm-hmm. and the hunk dude's like, I found your book of poetry. I put it to music, and he's on the <laughs> piano. And they, like, over the course of a couple of minutes, suddenly find the dude. melody for I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. Is, and it's, it's like, it's not exactly know, once. I know, well, even so, like, I know where this song came. It's not even an original. Like, we know where the sun came from. This would be like if you were watching, like, I don't know, if you were watching Dick Tracy, and then, like, Al Pacino sat down with Madonna at a, at a piano. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, it's like you're like a virgin. <laughs> Touch for the very first time. Like, <laughs> how'd that lion get in here? Like, that's, yeah. that's what it's like, because you already know the song, so it's absurd. So uh, Alex Weedle does have a little bit of those kind of yeah. corny tropes that come with biopics. And I feel like those are the, the sort of the linchpins that we can hang on. But it wisely has a point and mm. has those little uh, life moments that all of these other small acts films have had in spades. I, I guess and, it, and I liked the way it ends. Yeah. There's a conversation near the end where it, he runs into an old friend, which that, I really, really love. That's really nice. They handled uh, I like that, that a lot. I, I, I'm... I feel like, yeah, maybe it could have breathed a little bit more, but yeah. I think Steve McQueen knew just to get in and get I, out. Again, I missed Mangrove, but I loved mm. Lover's Rock, and I liked Red, White, and Blue a lot. Mm. 
This one feels like it doesn't quite come together as effectively mm. overall, but there's still beautiful stuff here. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's still very, very good. But this is a, my least favorite of the three I've seen. Okay, that's um, all, that's I guess I guess that's it. I guess I, I'm like I can't help but put them next to each other now because they're all part of a chunk. Exactly. You know? so this is all now. We understand this is a bigger piece. Well, it's like if you're watching. It's like if you're, watch, like if you're watching an anthology mm. horror movie and one of the bits isn't quite as scary as the others, mm. even though it's fine. <laughs> you know, it just sort of like just sort of sticks out. Like, right. oh yeah. Yeah, the third the third bit uh, with the shark isn't great, and yeah, it's fine. It's and and I'm looking forward to the next week. We'll be talking about the fifth chapter, which is called Education. Yep. and uh, we're gonna talk about that when we see it. Very exciting. And, and I I really hope that uh, it this cycle is complete. Yeah, that they're, that they're all equally strong because uh, what, a, what, what, a, what what a pity if they just whizzed it. it. Yeah. yeah, at the end, it's just like they just remade that mm-hmm. like. And it turns out these movies were about something really dumb. No, yeah. it's actually, it actually just turns out it's like it just they just show that animated movie "Fly Me to the Moon" about the flies. <laughs> that <laughs> like, that's just all it is. They just show that small axe education is just "Fly, fly me, me to, to the, the moon. moon." Yeah, that's it. We changed the title. Just drew over it. Oh my god! In MS Paint. Um, so that is the new releases for the week. Uh, let's uh, review them all on the critically acclaimed scale one last time. Mm. Uh, the critically acclaimed scale, if anyone's new or needs a refresher, we review films on a scale of C- to C+. Most movies are a C. You've all been to school. C is average. C- is below average. Everything from we simply don't recommend it to it's absolutely terrible. C- is above average. Everything from we quite recommend it to the best movie ever made. Uh, Alex Wheatle... Uh, it's a very high C yeah, for me. Yeah. I think it's not I, um, quite, doesn't quite achieve greatness, but it's sensitively told. Um, it's it's quite good. I think the only reason why this doesn't quite work is I think it's a little structureless and to its detriment, but mostly it just it's being forced to stand up to the other small axe movies, and it's just a little mm. too slight to to really mm. stand out. All right. Oh, uh, yeah. So we'll you, get, I think when we get when we've seen all five, then we can sort of judge them as a whole no, we, for now next week let's try to yeah, remember as, to, to judge the whole small axe yeah. series as a, yeah, as, as, a as, as a singular film i agree it's like a really really high c okay uh funny boy funny boy is golly i gotta go with c minus okay. uh not, not not a passionate c minus it's not a complete disaster but it really despite all of its sweetness and despite some of this emotional honesty that it has yeah it really just sort of falls apart in the second half okay uh, I'm your woman. Uh, I'm gonna give it a high C. Mm. I do think uh, that it it hits kind of a wall and almost does its job too well in the middle <laughs> in terms of like just making the protagonist wait. And I'm like, mm. I'm waiting too, and I'm getting a little impatient. But I think it resolves really well. Mm. And um, yeah, it's a high high C. It's an yeah, excellently conceived film. Maybe the execution not not ideal. I I appreciated the the slow pace. I think it's a good character drama. I loved its sense of uh, play, time and place and timing as okay. well. Uh, I'm gonna give it a C plus. Fair enough. All right, moving on. Uh, Gunda. Gunda, uh, C plus. Golly, okay. what a what a great pig. <laughs> what a great thing to just look. Okay. That's what film invites you to do anyway, is just look. And nice. now we're just looking at some animals. All right, and let's uh, mm. let's let's get to some uh, some fighting news, uh, <laughs> fighting words. Uh, 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 wild Mountain Time. <laughs> <laughs> it's big old C minus. This okay. is a big old goose egg. It's just an awful, not yeah. fun to watch movie. Uh, I liked it. Thanks, boys. You have no help whatsoever. Uh, this is not a C plus by any stretch. This is a C 
right. it's, but it's a comfortable C for me, even though the the accents are really embarrassing. They're they're really bad. <laughs> Whatever defense the filmmakers like, may have had, they're 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 bad accents at this. There's movie. a reason we've brought it up several yeah, times. They're not. They're good. bad. But like Keanu Reeves didn't ruin much ado about nothing, and I'm gonna let it slide a little bit because <laughs> ultimately I liked the, I liked Shanley's overall tone that he struck here, uh, and I got a little bit more out of the narrative than Whitney did, and ultimately I thought. It's perspective on the rich inner worlds of people who cannot express themselves and are afraid to. Mm. Um, ultimately, thanks in part to an ending that I admit comes out of left field and is kind of weird. I think it ultimately comes together and is actually kind of sweet. I thought it was kind of sweet. That's it. Yeah. That's all I got. I'm not going to, can't say any more than that. I'm not going to call it the best movie of the year. I thought it was kind of sweet. Yeah. That's it. The, the, the prom. It made, made me sting. Um, the prom. The prom sucks out loud. C minus. <laughs> the the prom sucks a little. <laughs> C minus. Uh, I thought you were going to go C on this. I really no don't. no. Okay. I, I again this this is oh, I'm in this awkward position of defending a film I don't like that much. Yeah, just because you I liked it slightly more. I, than I liked it else. more yeah. than most people. I, I but I still want to stress. It's not good. I'm not yeah. enjoying myself that much, but I appreciated a lot of what was going into it. There's so much in the movie that some of it hit you. Some of it hit me. Okay. There's a couple and, of things I like about it, but overall I thought it was just tone deaf and didn't right. work. Oh, and Carrie Washington's really good. She's good in everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. There are good people in the cast, just some of them don't have enough to work with. All right, that is the new releases for this week. Now it's time for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. We invited our patrons over at patreon.com slash network. Uh, to pick an 80s action movie that one or both of us hadn't seen on Amazon Prime. And the film, there, there's some good stuff on that poll. We had Dead Heat on that poll, mm-hmm. in which uh, Treat Williams and Joe Piscopo are a mismatched cop duo where one of them is a zombie. And like Vincent Price was the bad guy. One of these days I'm going to see that. Um, let's see what else we had. We had Runaway, in which Tom Selleck is a cop chasing runaway robots that are being controlled by an evil Gene Simmons from Kiss. What was your other one that you put on there? I'm trying to remember. What was the other Oh, it was um, um, not, uh, not Death Wish. It, it, it one was of those deathy. One of those deathy action movies one of those that, that many people have seen. Action and uh, what you picked was Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a truly ambitious sci-fi epic from 1981 uh, that had a pretty good pedigree. Uh, incredible visual effects and got dumped into one of the toughest summers on record. Seriously, people are like, oh, why didn't Dragon Slayer do better? Here's June of 1981. June of 1981 consists of, and these are just some of the movies Clash of the Titans, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, let's see what we got here The Cannonball Run, Superman 2. For Your Eyes Only, Stripes and the Great Muppet Caper. And For Your Eyes Only, Stripes and the Great Muppet Caper came out the same week as Dragon Slayer. So it was just sort of buried underneath its competition. It was a really crowded summer. And it just uh, didn't have, whatever yeah, reasons, didn't have the drop. Yeah, this was uh, this is high fantasy, wizards and warriors, uh, medieval times, and, dra- and a dragon. Yeah. Uh, ca- called the Vermithrax Pejorative. Which is a hell of a dragon is, yeah. name. 
That, which they only mentioned once. They don't like say it over and over. I think again, they say but, once or twice, but like regardless, it's just uh, a great name for a dragon. And this this was uh, in the spirit of Star Wars, a big special effects bonanza. This yeah. was made largely to uh, display the the new kind of special effects technology that they were working on. Phil Tippett, who worked on the Star Wars movies, worked on this, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the dragon was realized in a new technique that they called go motion, which is That's, really fascinating. It's, actually. it's a stop motion. A stop motion animation is, uh, I'm sure, you know, is mm-hmm. where they f- take a single picture of a doll or a physical object, and then they move it slightly, take another picture, string all the pictures together. And yeah, we got movement there. Yeah. Uh, I love the look of stop motion animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is stop motion. Uh, and but some people are put off by it because it does have a little bit of a jerky quality to it. You can, yeah, it's not as smooth as as like modern live CG yeah. or live action. Go motion used new kinds of photographic and even digital techniques to kind of blur that jerkiness a little bit, so yeah. that they would the movement would seem a lot more natural. And boy, mm. does it work! And they blended that with uh, like puppetry and miniatures. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it looks really, really good. Uh, in addition to that, it's also a pretty atmospheric movie with a pretty good story. It's a good story, and uh, it's a thoughtful story in a way that I don't think we're used to mm-hmm. in summer blockbusters. It ends up feeling like it ends up hitting some of the same beats, although maybe not as satirically, mm-hmm. as something you would expect from Paul Verhoeven or Terry Gilliam. There's a mm-hmm. lot of really pointed commentary about class, about religion, mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's there's a version of this where they could have played it for laughs or made it a little bit more kid friendly and it would have been insufferable. Oh yeah, I was thinking of like uh, that movie Aragon, <laughs> Aragon, Ar- yeah. Ar- Aragon, Aragon the Dragon. Yeah, um, which is uh, we I've seen that movie twice. Mm. No memory of it. Yeah, it's, 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 gone. it's, it's uh, what's the phrase? Uh, phrase Roger Ebert said uh, it it passed through his brain without hitting any brain cells. Yeah, I could just sort of pass. Like it wasn't watchable. I I got through it fine. Mm. I literally watched it twice. I watched it once when it came out. I watched it another time for a podcast. And mm. I the, the the one thing I forgot that the second time I watched it, I'm like, oh yeah, was that John Malkovich played the bad guy. John and, Malkovich is the end. Yeah, and that's the only thing I picked up in the second viewing. I don't even remember who voiced the dragon anymore. It's Rachel Weisz. Now I remember who voiced the dragon. Rachel Weisz played the dragon. I knew it was someone who was too good for the film. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, really? Rachel Weisz? And and the story is this complete Star Wars knockoff. uh, Aragon, specifically. Not Dragon Slayer, yeah. Aragon is. And and they play it uh, like a little bit for laughs, whereas Mm. the young uh, Ward is is a little bit like a bumbly guy, but they try to make him kind of handsome and likable as well. He's everything uh, to everyone and just nothing at all. In Dragon Slayer, they cast Peter McNichol, who's actually a good actor. Yeah. And plays the part well. He's not trying to be a charmer. Yeah. He's not cast as a comic sidekick. He's cast yeah. as an inexperienced young man. Nor is he an action hero mm. destined for greatness. Which, like you thank see, goodness, yeah. Which, is, which you'll see in like a lot of things where like you look at like Guardians of the Galaxy where like Peter Quill is like, hey, he's a goofball. Yeah, he's still a muscle stud. Mm. I mean, he worked out between movies, but like in that movie, he's a muscle stud. So you know eventually he'll be able to do all the cool action stuff. Peter McNichol, if you're unfamiliar with the name, is probably best known for playing Janusz in uh, Ghostbusters 2. The guy who said, he is Vigo! Uh, he's also best known for playing one of the eccentric lawyers on Ally McBeal. Yeah. He's a very prolific character actor, very, very funny, but he at no point in his physicality, even when he was young, screamed dashing leading Ac- man. Action hero. Uh, he's hilarious in uh, Mel Brooks' Dracula. 
Yes, he's he plays, very funny. He plays Renfield yeah, in that one. Very, very he's funny. so good in that he movie. He throws himself into eccentric roles, and this is something that... It's interesting, because mm-hmm. a lot of times we've seen actors who are kind of really good at character stuff, but who are dashing and handsome, get thrown into generic Hollywood leading roles and not be able to bring anything to it. We've seen this... I, the, the example I bring up all the time is Colin Farrell, mm. who's actually a really good actor if you give him something to do. Like, you put him in something interesting, like, I don't know, In Bruges, or uh, Tigerland, or... Um, or, or like, even Daredevil. Uh, even Daredevil. He yeah. gets to play an over-the-top villain. He's great in that movie. Wow. He's over-the-top, but that's what the movie wanted him to be. He's awesome in it. He's very captivating. You put him in The Recruit, nobody gives a shit. Or SWAT. Or, yeah, yeah he's, he, he's, just, he just sort of blends into the yeah. background there. He can't... For whatever reason, he's not. He doesn't. Think, well, he can't, or he's not allowed to do anything interesting with the generic roles. Peter McNichol plays a sorcerer's apprentice who has to take on the sorcerer role when his master unexpectedly dies. Uh, in fact, is killed by the film's villain. Yeah. So r- the, right at the start of the movie. Yeah. The, the movie begins. It's so cool. So the movie begins uh, with uh, Peter McNichol and Ralph Richardson, the great Ralph Richardson, playing this wizard, mm. and they're in a castle and they're doing wizard things. And a group of villagers comes in and mm. says, "There's a dragon who is demanding a sacrifice twice a year. We had to sacrifice a virgin to him. Or, I'm sorry, to her twice a year. Uh, and we're sick of it. And we want a wizard to kill the dragon. Would you please kill the dragon? And the wizard's just like, well." Fine. So he, I, I, I don't want to, and uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the the people who come are led by a young man named Valerian. Mm-hmm. No relation to Valerian the movie. No, although the comic had already been out, someone might be a fan. All right, uh, and um, yeah, and uh, so right as they're about to leave, uh, the king's like guardsman, like the second in command, the Darth Vader of the yeah. film, if you will, uh, shows up and says, "Oh, you you found yourself a wizard." I don't trust wizards. They always say they can do magic, and then it's never like, oh, the stars aren't right today. Mm-hmm. So Ralph Richardson says, okay, I'll prove it to you. Here's a dagger. Stab me. And the guy does, and Ralph Richardson dies. Yep. <laughs> Just like right he, there. He, he, casts, oh. he casts a spell on the dagger, so you think he's going to be okay? Nope. Didn't work. He dies. Yeah. It, although the, the spell he casts it will be significant the, the, later. It, there's, uh, there's a whole plot. Like, but like well, maybe, it's, maybe we shouldn't say too much about the plot. It's an unexpected way uh, to start a movie. Yeah, uh, but then uh, Peter McNichol decides to take it upon himself. He f- he goes back into the lab. He finds a little magical crystal that sort of enhances what he's been studying, and he actually has some powers. Yeah, he goes on the road with uh, the oldest man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> just a, gr- a grumpy old ward who's yeah. there to, there to accompany him and says i'm gonna going to destroy the dragon he goes to the town that's been sacrificing virgins he finds a bit of a corruption scheme going on there mm-hmm. uh where uh the wealthy have been uh paying to keep their daughters out of the pot out of but, the lottery yeah. that they've been throwing yeah so there's a mm. huge, there's a huge class thing here where we can sacrifice the lower classes mm. uh and of course people finds out that that's bullshit and Again, this movie is so interestingly structured because it doesn't... I think it's one of the reasons why it doesn't necessarily have that, like, gee whizzing people are expecting because... Because it doesn't build in the conventional sort of way. No, it doesn't. In fact, one of the first things, they're walking home. Like, they're like a big, long, like, multi-day journey to get back to this village and fight the dragon. And Peter McNichol is on his way there, and they're, like, they're walking through these mountains. And like, oh, the dragon's lair is over there, but if we walk quickly, he won't see us. Or she, I always knew that, but um, it is it's it, a, it's a monster. Well, right, it, yeah. it lays eggs, so I guess it's okay. A she. Yeah, but yeah, maybe, yeah. I, although I don't know if it has a mate, so maybe it's uh, mm. it's producing asexually. I don't know. Um, 
And so, yeah, Vermithrax Pejorative Slayer is over there, but if we move quickly, we, we won't notice us. I'm like, well, I'm here to kill it. I'll just go kill it right now. Mm. Like, I, can and, you and do they, that? They go into the cave, and he collapses the cave. He collapses the whole fucking mountain and they think on top the, of well, Vermithrax. Well, that, that should be enough. Yeah, <laughs> so he, they which think, is not an unreasonable thing. They think the job is done, and... Uh, we learn that uh, Valerian, we actually learned a little bit earlier in the movie that, and it's pretty clear that Valerian is a woman in disguise. Yeah, her father um, has been hiding her since she was born as a boy so that she wouldn't be put into the lottery and killed. Right. So uh, after he, uh, Peter McNichol collapses the mountain, there's a big party, they have uh-huh. a big feast, and uh, and Valerian comes out in her dress. And yeah. It's like, and I, I don't have to disguise myself anymore because there's no lottery anymore. Right. Yeah, I can be my, yeah. my own gender. And, and, and everybody's like, well, Oh yeah. Fair, fair played. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. Like nobody's really freaked out by it. They're a little surprised. Yeah. A couple of people are a bit like, Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually pretty cute. Um, but at this point, this is yeah, the movie. Obviously Vermithrax is fine. Otherwise mm. the movie would be very short. Uh, so Vermithrax will come back in a bit, but mm. again, this is a very unconventional structure, and here's where the movie starts sort of putting its cards on the table. It's really defied our expectations of what this sci-fi story would be and how it would be told, but one of the things it starts saying right now is there's a guy who like goes to Valerian's father and is like, oh yeah, I wish I'd thought of what you did before my daughter died, and isn't it interesting that, you know, dragons been plaguing us for generations, and only now that a Christian is in town mm. does the dragon die clearly christianity is the real thing mm. and we, we in the audience are going uh that's a big leap <laughs> we just use pagan magic to kill that but we're just gonna and over the course of the film like christianity takes over the entire town because it happens to like basically without without getting into it at the end of the movie the end of the movie is so fucking perfect because we we build to this huge, giant, like forty minute climax of like fighting the dragon and it's huge and mm. they they kept most of the dragon off camera for a while and then you see it and it's glorious and then we see a lot of it for the rest of the movie so it's totally worth the wait. Uh but <laughs> at the end, after they kill the fucking thing, everyone takes credit. Yeah, and they had yeah. nothing to do with it. The Christians take credit for it. Look what our god Although, did. Yeah. And Peter Medical's like, hey. And then the king shows up and he just stabs the corpse of the dragon. And he's just like, look what I just yeah, did. And Peter Medical's like, you know what? Fuck, fuck you all. That, that was a, and that's, that's a Falstaff maneuver. You yeah. know, Falstaff. Oh, look, he's dead. I'll put my spear in it. Look, I stabbed this guy. Yeah. Something that actually happened in Henry IV. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah, it's it's and, so uh, bitter. Although, uh, yeah, and, and Christianity takes it on the chin because there's a pre uh, priest, uh, yeah. an early uh, Christian cleric played by Ian McDiarmid. Yeah, like the emperor sho- from, from Star Wars. Yeah who, yeah, who shows up and says, "I'm going to use, I'm going to pray away the dragon." Yes. Going to like confront it with Christianity, and he just gets turned to toast. It's the the so dragon gross. doesn't care. <laughs> like, there's even a shot God. of like his just, like charred skeleton standing there screaming. Yeah. Boy, mm. is it, boy, is it, like, it's mm. thoughtful. This movie was directed uh, and co-written by Matthew Robbins, who has a really cool career, and nobody talks about this guy. He's mostly a screenwriter. He's mostly. directed a few interesting movies. Yeah. Uh, he directed, uh, he, okay, he directed Corvette Summer, uh, which is a reasonably well-regarded, but not often discussed uh, uh, car culture film it's, starring Mark Hamill. It's, it's well-regarded? Actually, I know a lot of people like yeah. this one. Do you not like oh. this one? I've, I've, I've only heard negative things oh, about okay. Corvette well, Summer. I, I, guess, oh. I guess it's mixed, because I've heard people like it. But whatever, I actually never saw it. Uh, then he also directed uh, the 
really wonderful 80s cult film, The Legend of Billie Jean, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, it stars Helen Slater from Supergirl and uh, Christian Slater, who I think no relation. Uh, and uh, they are uh, poor kids who are uh, framed for a crime by rich people in town who hate them. And they end up becoming, like, America's most wanted and, like, the scapegoat for, like, teen rebellion. Like, we gotta get these teens! Billie Jean is the is the death of America! And she ends up, like, actually becoming, like, an activist for youth rights. And it's better than you'd think. <laughs> it's a little ridiculous. Like, Keith Gordon shows up as, like, this rich kid who has a water slide out his window so he can get into the pool. Like, there's a bunch of, like, 80s weird bits like that. Mm. But it's actually, like... It's bit, it's got more rage than you'd think. Okay, I've, it's I've, pretty cool. I haven't seen The Legend of Billie Jean. I did see uh, Batteries Not Included. That movie uh, is uh, great. And, uh, th- one of the Amblinest Amblin movies you've ever seen about little uh, sentient flying saucers from space that end up moving into a, a neighborhood and mm-hmm. the you know the way people react to it. But it's all very E.T. and a lot of wonderment. Yeah, it's it's got down. a fantastic ensemble cast and it's mm. mostly about uh um uh, gentrification basically and yeah. it's it holds up i rewatched this pretty recently that movie is really fucking good i think it's co-written by brad bird co-written by brad bird yeah. uh, and mick garris was credited on yeah. it so yeah a lot a lot of interesting people worked on uh, batteries not included but for the it was last... a big deal like in yeah. 1987 and then yeah. people stopped talking about but for it. the last 25 years he's actually been a, a mostly uh, his most of his credits are he's a regular uh, collaborator with guillermo del toro Mm. Uh, and is responsible for co-writing the film's Mimic, which I think is a little underrated. Uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which Del Toro produced, which is also a little underrated. Uh, and uh, he also co-wrote Crimson Peak, which uh, that's one that has a very mixed mm. reaction. Some people <laughs> love that movie. Wow. Some people hate that movie. I'm a little in the middle, but mm. it's... it's So he makes... And he's part of these sort of interestingly told fantasy films and dark fantasy films for the most part. Mm. And he's not beholden to a lot of the studio structure. And I'm amazed he got some of these films made. Like, Dragon Slayer is, seems like a tough sell for a giant blockbuster Disney film. This is a co-production of Disney and Paramount. Mm. It's violent. It's horrifying. There, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a flash, but there's actually male nudity in it. Uh, and some female as well. And some female uh, nudity, but like from the side or whatever. But regardless, mm. you know, that's, that's unusual. <laughs> For for a for a sci-fi fantasy film of the era, which again, most of these movies are being marketed towards mm. kids, and this is not a movie for kids, or at least it's not a movie for kids who are only movie. looking for escapist fantasy. It's, 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 a, for, it's a movie for eleven-year-old kids. Yeah. Uh, it's not for like real little kids. No, no, no that's the point. It's, it's not. It's not a four quadrant kind of thing. I yeah, think you yeah. have to like really a think dragons are cool, and they are. But B, be willing to like, hey, I want a fantasy epic that isn't about like awesome people fighting monsters. I want a fantasy epic that's about not awesome people fighting monsters and about how religion and capitalism is screwing us all over. I, and, and that's what I appreciate about Dragon Slayer. Uh, th- there's a perfectly decent, uh, plenty of pl- perfectly decent fantasy films that are just sort of a series of adventures. Okay, mm-hmm. and now we have to, uh, you know, pass this challenge or fight this monster. Yeah. That's um uh, that Everring story, that's Lord of the Rings. It's uh, you know, Everring story is a little bit more complicated than that, but yeah, fair enough. It's, yeah. It, it, well, and, yeah. and there's like the meta, meta narrative in, in yeah. Everring story, a but, long quest yeah. full of side. Exactly. Quests. Uh, yeah. This I, I appreciate that Dragon Slayer isn't about that. It's about a single quest and the challenges that arise along the way with humans. Yeah, 
that that halt you from completing mm-hmm. that quest. And they're exploiting mm-hmm. uh, a disaster. They're exploiting mm-hmm. horror. They're exploiting violence. This is something for power. This is something that was flirted with uh, in a really clumsy sort of way in the desolation of smog. Yeah, where uh, uh, there's a lot of extra scenes that the filmmakers put into that movie. Uh, Back at like the village that's next to Lake Town, Lake Town that's yeah. next to Smog's Mountain, and yeah, we get to learn to meet the mayor and the mayor's toady and all these other like the way politics in Lake Town are actually halting people from doing their jobs. But yeah. in that case, that's a distraction. Well, because the movie wasn't the story wasn't originally structured to include that. That might have been no. like background noise, but it was never an important part of the narrative. And, and so they, you have to basically add scenes to an otherwise and pretty because, streamlined uh, story. And because uh, Peter Jackson is such an, a rambunctious filmmaker, he's like filming the heck out of these things and there's all these details and yeah. everybody's got these really wild makeup jobs and everything's like this gigantic climax. We're not living in the town. We're not yeah. getting to know it. And what I appreciate about uh, Dragon Slayer, because it was of the era in which it was made, we're shooting on location mm-hmm. where we have to take a little bit more time to lock down our shots yeah. and actually present these things as if they're a little bit more natural and lived in. It feels, it it has an aesthetic that Mm. feels incredibly lived in. It feels Mm. very real. The dragon feels real. The dragon feels tangible. The the photography goes a long way to explain this too. It has the sort of like hazy, uh, weathered, almost wet photography. Well, and that even goes... It doesn't, the... it doesn't look super slick until mm-hmm. we see the dragon, and by then we're dealing with a fantasy creature, so mm-hmm. it's kind of okay. Well, the first time we see the dragon at all, uh, we only see it in little bits. There's a woman who is being sacrificed to the dragon, mm-hmm. and we see, like, the dragon's claw or the dragon's tail, and it, like, heavily dragging over things, mm-hmm. but we never get a good look at it. But even those bits are really wisely handled, and they remember little details that I think some people often forget, which is that puppets, regardless mm. of how detailed they are, look like puppets. <laughs> and so what they did, and it helps because it's you know it's a it's a film that's full of fog and mist and mm. dew. Uh, the dragon is moist, <laughs> and that was probably a real pain on the set, but it makes it look real. Yeah, it makes it look tangible. It makes it look like it's affecting the environment like and that, lived in. And, and that's uh... yeah. That's an old special effects trick. Yeah. In order to to make your puppet or your fake creature look a little bit more real or a little bit more visceral, you just make it wet. You spray it. You either spray it down or you coat it with slime. Yeah. uh, The I in uh, Alien Resurrection, I remember seeing a special feature on that when it was coming out, Mm. and uh, that movie is goopy. (laughs) And apparently, the KY jelly budget on that on that on that Mm. movie. Was nuts. Like, like you're just every time you see an alien, it's like covered in KY. Yeah, it's yeah. such a very Although distinct image. I, I I remember seeing a making of uh, Alien Three, and yeah. yeah, in that like there's that famous shot where the alien's right close to Sigourney Weaver's face, yeah, and, it's, and it's it's just like sweating goop. It's just like yeah. dripping on her. Yeah, and I I remember they said that. Th- that goop they used is what they use instead of milk in like fast food milkshakes. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. It's like a food thickening agent yeah. of some kind. They weird. just in its raw form, they just yeah. sprayed the alien with that stuff. So, so everything just feels really tangible and earthy. And then yeah, once we get to the the big climax of the film, mostly takes place inside Vermithrax's cave, mm-hmm. and the cave is like full of fire pits. And little baby dragons, which are also horrifying and will eat you and do eat a major character. And it's gross. Mm. Like, there's one, like, Peter Benickel, like, 
chops off the head of one and a human hand falls out of its mouth. <laughs> it's pretty cool. so gross. Yeah. Uh, um, boy, so, cool. The, the thing, something I, uh, I don't like about Dragon Slayer, uh, though, is it goes, I think it goes a little too far with the special effects. Interesting. Like when they're realizing the dragon, all that stuff is cool. But then they start throwing in little bits of things, like uh, something will fall into a lake and they'll add a lot of special effects as the lake kind of bubbles and comes to life. And that's visually cool, but it makes me start to think that they weren't really thinking out any kind of real rules yeah, in this world that. that was actually kind of carefully thought out up, up until that. I can appreciate and then that. There's, and then there's yeah. this big special effects climax where there's like a big... Uh, the Wizard the, on the, a mountain. Yeah, a wizard on a mountain. Yeah. There's a lot of effects in the sky. It's like... Mm, this looks cool. I like the way this looks, but there it, it feels like this is not essential to the film. They do one of my. I I really do consider this an almost unforgivable sin hmm. in an adventure movie, or really any movie, really, uh, where uh, a character is told by another character to do a thing, and you must do this thing if you want to defeat the bad guy, the dragon, hmm. the god, whatever, save the day. When when do I do this? You'll know when, oh. or you can. Tell me right now. <laughs> you, it, seriously, just wait. Like all I have to do is just say, "Wait until I'm in the dragon's claws." Bump, done. Yeah, it takes two seconds. What? What? Wh why is this the time for a test? Like this is the time mm. to just get shit done for God's sake. I hate that. And just once, oh. I want to see. Just once, I want to see in a movie where someone's just like, "All right, I'm going in." Mm. Now, when I give the signal. You come in and save me, but not one second sooner or you'll blow this deal. Well, what's the signal? You'll know it when you hear it. Two minutes later, bursts in, Hey, I'm here to save you! No, not yet! Oh, a trash can fell over! I thought that was you! <laughs> Damn it! The the fantasy trope that bugs me is when they uh they go to a like a great extent, it's like, oh, and we need to find the three keys of Pintuzler, and we need to combine them <laughs> together, and we make this magical weapon. It's like, yeah. aha, and then they make a big deal of this weapon, and then it gets, like, knocked out of their hands, and they end up, end up having to use their wits. <laughs> and I appreciate the message there. Yeah. Your wits are the strongest weapon, but... but Built that up, but a it's like, lot. why did you spend so much time building it up if we're just going to knock it out of their hands? They even did that in the Avengers movie. They did. It's like we're, we have to go to this forge with a gigantic Peter Dinklage and do this like yeah. big thing where you have to hold this thing shut with my body and absorb oh, really? solar radiation and, and to really make this weapon. And really didn't add up to a lot, did that? And then yeah. he had it, and then he just had it. It's yeah, like, that's all at the end of Krull. Like, mm. it made a big deal about the glaive, and it's this mm. cool razor frisbee that flies on its own. It's yeah. super awesome. I love the glaive. Don't get me wrong. But at the end, it's just like, oh, we didn't need the glaive. We just needed our marriage. Well, he needed the glaive to free his bride. And then when they were together, the power of their marriage gave him firepower. You know what? You remember Crawl a little better than me. You're right. It is great. <laughs> it is a great movie, and I apologize for bad mouth right. Krull. I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to besmirch your favorite movie, Krull. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Krull, my favorite movie. Um, after all this buildup, the Dragon oh. Slayer, pretty cool. What do you think? Pre pretty cool. I yeah. Like, I like it. Um, yeah. It's it's not something like I'd re regret that I hadn't seen earlier in my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I had, like, I'd, I'd think a little bit more fondly of it. Sure. I just saw it for the first time. But yeah, I, I appreciate it. I really like it. I uh, I like the special effects. I like the earthiness. And I do like that the story is 
a little bit more human yeah. than sort of fantasy driven. Yeah, I hadn't revisited this in a mm. long, long time. And boy, am I glad I did because not only do the visual effects hold up, mm. uh, but the story's smarter than I remembered. And yeah. it's it's a really good film. It's a good film. I think it's a fantasy film for adults with obvious kid appeal right. rather than a fantasy film for kids with obvious adult appeal, which I feel right. is where a lot of blockbuster cinema lies right now. There's nothing terribly wrong with that, but it's good to have variety. Um, and the, finally, the one thing I will say is, as far as I'm concerned, Vermithrax Pejorative is the gold standard in movie dragons. <laughs> I don't think we've had a cooler dragon before or since. That's not to say we haven't had cool dragons. But this is the one that looks right. This is the one that feels right. This is the one that is threatening. This is the like apex of dragons mm. in cinema. Uh, I know some people love Smaug from Desolation of Smaug. And I'll just say this. They base that off of Vermithrax pejorative because they acknowledge the Vermithrax. They've said this, like, no, the Vermithrax is the best dragon. <laughs> we, we were trying to do Vermithrax. That's yeah. it. That's all we did. We did Vermithrax. Yeah. I, I, I typically hate films with dragons. I'm not so fond of this genre, like sure. the, the, the high wizardry kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I like this one. Uh, and like I said, I, I appreciate it because of its earthy photography. Yeah. It feels like it takes place in the real world. Mm -hmm. They used actual like Latin. They thought about like when it takes place in human history. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, the main crux of the story is actually human concerns. Yeah. The dragon's a problem, but there's a lot more going on than just the dragon. Mm -hmm. And the, the stuff that's going on isn't like other creatures or right. You know, curses or armies or anything. If the like problem that. was just the dragon, mm -hmm. the movie would be easier, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And, but even though it, it's concerned is primarily with, how humans are responding to using, profiting, exploiting this mm. naturally occurring yeah. thing. Mm. Uh, the dragon itself is, again, it takes a while for them to show Vermithrax in, in its entirety. But once it does, they remember, no, this is a spectacle film. Yeah. Uh, this movie was nominated for two Academy Awards. Uh, it was nominated for Best Original Score. And apparently some of the original score was some of the original score that was written for 2001 A Space Odyssey that wasn't used. Oh, that's right, because they ended up going with the scratch track. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, that happened to a lot of famous movies, actually. Um, but uh, and it it was nominated opposite Raiders of the Lost Ark, which also has one of the great adventure like, themes of all time. Hummable movie scores, and they both lost. They both lost to Chariots of Fire. That's a good. That's a good tune. Though. It's a hell of a listen. That With was that Vangelis music. Vangelis. Uh... That listen. I'm going to say this right now. That that movie may not be as fondly remembered as Raiders of the Lost Ark, or maybe even Dragon Slayer to some people, uh, that score was lightning mm. when it came out. It was inspiring, and it helped really push Electronica through the 80s, and that became a very big thing. So that was... that was like, It also was nominated for Best Visual Effects, and it only had one other nominee, and it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm going to say this right now, mm. I think Dragon Slayer should have won. I think you're right. Well, yeah. that's a tough one because you think of the you know, the melting Nazis. Those, There's those cool kinda, stuff in the movie. It's stick in your head. It deserves the nomination, yeah. not arguing it. But I do think that in the end, Dragon Slayer was more ambitious. And I think that what it achieved is more consistently eye-popping mm. than what Raiders did. Okay. So I think I I do I will say this. They, they, neither of them probably should have. Maybe Raiders should have won Best Original Score, but it's close. I think Dragon Slayer got screwed out of visual effects. That's a great <laughs> fucking movie. Um, all right. So glad we did this. Uh, next time on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, we will be reviewing uh, classic movies on Hulu. And uh, the poll is still going over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. 
Um, by the time you listen to this, it might not be. Uh, but as of this recording, uh, Dial M for Murder was in the lead. But some of the other films that were uh, nominated include mm. uh, The Bad and the Beautiful, which is a behind-the-scenes Hollywood drama starring Kirk Douglas, Lana Turner, and Walter Pigeon. It's a Vincent Minnelli film, if I recall. Yeah, I just I thought you said that. Mm. Um, uh, Giant, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and in his final role, James Dean. In an epic Americana oil field generational family drama romance. Kind of one of those movies that's got a little bit of everything. Uh, and then finally, Robin and the Seven Hoods. A Rat Pack musical in which Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. invite Bing Crosby and Peter Falk along for the ride. As they play Damon Runyon-esque uh, uh, gangsters in Chicago who sing and dance. Uh, I've, I've, yeah, I've seen two of those. The two you put on there, and they're, they're great. And uh, I have there's two I haven't seen, and I don't know if they're great, but I hear they're great. Uh, right now, Dialing for Murder is in the lead, but anything can happen, so be sure to vote if you haven't already. And of course, we have polls for that every single week, and of course, on our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyClaimedNetwork, we have a ton of exclusive shows. Uh, we have more polls to decide future episodes. Uh, we're gonna have another Google Hangout at the end of the at the end of the month. Um, I'm sorry, it's not it's not Google Hangout anymore. We do Discords now. Okay, Discords yeah. is what it is now. But regardless, we're gonna do it. Uh, and uh, what is this Google Hangout? Who I don't know. Anymore. What are you a hundred? I'm still get I'm, with the times, old man. Make I'm your, sorry. I'll make my apologies on MySpace. Start start making your fleets. Get it. with the times. All right, everyone's gonna get kicked off a of Friendster at this point. Fleets on fleek. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I still don't know what a fleet is. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so yeah, and also we're on Twitter at Critical Claim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Uh, if you can't afford to be a patron, we totally get it. But you can leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts wherever you find us, uh, and uh, that helps the show immensely. Helps us find a new audience. So if you haven't done that, if you take a moment, that would mean a lot to us. But. Uh, either way, thank you very, very much for joining us. We'll be back next week with more movie reviews. We have a lot more shows on the Critically Acclaimed Network for you to enjoy. Until then, even if you're not a Patreon subscriber, and most importantly, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>